This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Kate Feldman. Kate, eight days ago, the Mets lost in five games to the Kansas City Royals in the World Series. When, if applicable, did you officially get over it? All right. I was sitting there. Work sent me to all three games. So for or two games, whatever they played. No, it was three. So I was expecting it to be like heartbroken and like crying in the press box. But I, I wasn't expecting it going in. And I think I'm okay with it. I will say that I was prepared for them to lose every single series <laughs> in the playoffs. Yeah, I, right. I, I picked against them. Uh, in the Dodger series at BP, I just wanted it to be like you know one of those like Spartan things where you sort of come back with your shield or on it, like a <laughs> yeah. good death, like if, continuing the tradition of obscure pop culture reference on the podcast, like Spike Spiegel's death at the end of Cowboy Bebop, that kind of like cool death. This was like the team slipped on a piece of soap in the bathtub and got found several days later with part of their corpse eaten by their cats. Is that kind of end of the season? <laughs> that was the most depressing thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I think. it was not a good, not a good. It wasn't. I mean, it was. I mean, they just got beaten. Like it was just. It was a bad. Job. It wasn't. Cl- I mean, some of the games were close, but it just wasn't like everything. Like, that you oh, one could've... thing could have changed everything. Like it was just time and time again that it didn't work out. Everything that you could have expected to go wrong for the team in a big spot did essentially. Exactly. I mean, when Murphy screwed up the ball, everyone I was in the ox box. Everyone around me just goes, yeah, okay. Nothing was surprising. It played out exactly like I think we all would have imagined it. But to answer the actual question, for me, it was the announcement of the Brad Miller trade on Twitter. And then <laughs> the immediate following of everyone making best shortstop in the AL jokes and various other <laughs> baseball Twitter memes. It's like, oh, it's got this like, sarcastic detachment from what's happening in the baseball world, it's back. I'm back. It's great. <laughs> but we do have to put the 2015 season to bed. And last year, we, for our season of review, we did 30 seconds on every single player on the Mets 2014 baseball reference page. That does not feel like a good and appropriate end yeah. for this team. 
And also, it would be over 20 minutes, and we have five segments to do. I also feel like we had a lot more players this year. I don't know if it's just because I paid more attention, but I feel like there's just, like, hundreds of people on that list. I think you're probably right. Let's take a quick (laughs) look now as I immediately get us off uh, the agenda. I should say this is episode 157 of Amazing Avenue Audio. Later in the show, I will discuss... The early off-season roster movements with Brian Salvatore, the upcoming Rule 5 draft protections with Greg Karam, some early off-season Avenue audio with Lucas Lajos, and we'll answer your emails with Milo Tybee. There were 48 players on this year's roster. Well, those are just people that got at bats. I might be missing some. It's tough to yeah. tell. It's tough to tell with the pitchers. 26 pitchers. I'll go with 48. That seems about right. So it would have been 24 minutes. I feel like that's about what it was last year. Is that real? I just feel like that doesn't seem like enough players. Just the people we were running out, like, day after day. It was the same kind of bad players they were running out in 2014. Only 45 per this one. I could probably break it down by the positional thing, but that's going to take more time. And this is our season review with Kate Feldman. So to actually do the season review... I am going to rip off the recent edition of the Suspedis Barbecue Podcast, which I think ripped it off from the effectively wild episode drafting moments from Game 4 of the Houston Astros and Kansas City Royals game. Um, And since I work for BP, I feel okay doing this. So we're going to draft our favorite moments. Actually, this is all ripped off from uh, the podcast that Joe Posnanski does with Ken Tremendous, so whatever. Instead of, you know, ripping our own podcast off from last year, we'll just rip off other people's podcasts. And we're going we're gonna to draft our favorite regular season moments because I feel like we've covered the playoffs in some depth since I did a podcast on every single game of them from 2015. So you can go first since it's your first time on. What's your, your – I guess it would be technically your favorite 2015 regular season moment. And we're interpreting moment somewhat liberally. Yeah. All right, I'm going to meet every cliche in the book, and it's going to be David Wright's first game back. And just the cookies and the hotel and that home run. And I just feel like that was, like, when I was like, okay, like, this is a real Mets team again. Like, this isn't what they've been rolling out for all of July. Like, this is a legitimate baseball team. And I think that's it. And I think that's going to be my favorite moment for, like, a long time. I think I technically have this on my list, too, but <laughs> from a slightly different angle. Uh, my favorite should not be a surprise to listeners. I've mentioned it several times on the podcast. And it, I think for me it was the moment – I guess this technically would have been a little bit earlier – where it's like, okay, something is happening here. And it's that first Sunday night game against the Nats right after the trade deadline. And, I mm. mean, you you go to baseball games for work now, so I think you can probably relate – um, it's a, I don't know how to go to baseball games. It's like a fan anymore. <laughs> every time I walk into a baseball park, stadium, field, whatever, wherever well, I may be, <laughs> like high school field in Windsor, apparently this year I'm going to be going to, cause there's like a potential sup round arm there, which is probably just like a dirt patch somewhere. Yeah. Cause that's but, what my high school was like. Like it was literally a dirt path to the baseball field. But I'm working. I'm dressed for work. I am. I am literally working. So, like Greg Karam said, things like I'm too stiff at games, which which was hilarious because I like literally jumped on him when I saw him for World Series Game Three after doing shots with McShane at the Holiday Inn bar oh, beforehand, and just started like randomly high fiving strangers. 
it's funny. I kept volunteering to do like play by play for our live blog because I needed something to keep my hands busy because I couldn't cheer. Like, right, I right, yeah, you can't do that in the press box. That's a... yeah. And I was like, this, is... and I'm not like at home, like in the privacy of my own home. I'm like screaming at my TV and everything. At the ballpark, I'm like relatively subdu- subdued. But like it was the postseason, like I I didn't trust myself at all. Were you there for the random like cheering Italian lady in the ox box? I missed her. I heard about that like the next night from Howard Magdal, and I was like, wait a second, like what are you? He was like on the other side from yeah, me. Yeah, it's a it's a bit. I mean, I've been in the Caesars or it's not the Caesars, yeah, club, whatever the that cell. club, the Cellar Club for auxiliary stuff like that, and it is huge. So yeah. Also, like, let's talk, the Mets auxiliary box is so much nicer. Yankees, I did the wildcard game, and they stuck me up in the last row of section 400. Like, nice. I, I took a step. I was, like, falling onto the field from, like, 600 feet up. Getting back to the uh, the Nats game. Eh, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. It's not a big deal. <laughs> this, is, this is what happens. I just try to eventually bring it back. Um, it was, like... Literally in the course of th- now, we had the Wilmer Flores game a couple of days before. There was the the big hits from Duda the previous night, but it really did feel like in those three hours the season changed. And really, that I guess it was the third inning sounds right. The third inning, like was it two and a half minutes, three minutes? The season just changed completely, and I've never felt anything like that before. And as longtime listeners will know. I've been kind of a downer on this show for years, doing things like ranting about Marlon Bird not getting traded before he got traded. But this was kind of like, oh, something, something's happening here. And then it did, and it was kind of awesome. That's, that's sort of what I trace it back to for me. All right, your second favorite moment. Um, It's going to be Wilmer Flores again, but not his walk-off. Okay. It was the night of him crying and the Wheeler thing. And I wrote about this, and, like, everyone I talk to knows how I feel. But, like, we're all so focused on, like, the numbers and stats and, like, performance. Like, these are still, like, 25-year-old boys playing a game. And I feel like everyone just took a step back that night, and they're like, oh, wait. Like, these are still humans. And I loved that. And I think, you know, it didn't last long because there are still games going on. But I just love that we, like, focus on, like, people not batting average for once. I really wanted to put the Wilmer Flores game on here, and I actually rewatched it um, before <laughs> Game Five, just to get myself pumped up. But I do remember now that I actually I was watching it on MLB TV, so I had mm-hmm. the endings. Of course, like stupidly, I know it's about forty five seconds behind the actual broadcast, but yeah. I still am on Twitter the entire time while I'm watching it on MLB TV. So, like <laughs> right before he hit the home run, it was just like my Twitter feed was suddenly just like people going nuts about Wilmer Flores. I'm like, oh, he's about to hit a home run, isn't he? And then it went. Yeah, not so much. <laughs> So I, I wasn't really in the moment enough to put it as my number two. So my number two is technically David Wright's first game back, but this was DeGrom getting sh- – the way I'm sort of approaching is DeGrom getting shelled against the Phillies, but it doesn't matter. Mm. And there was a lot other, a lot of other things going on in that game. Like you might forget that David Wright had a home run his first at bat back because there was something like seven Mets home runs in that game. <laughs> Yeah. And they came back from being down 7-1 against the Phillies, which never happens except when it's the Phillies playing the Mets in 2007. (laughs) I mean, it looked bad. It turned out just to be food poisoning from a bad burger because he should have had David Wright's cookies when he got into the the hotel room instead of the, you know, the Marriott room service burger that it probably was. I'm kind of disappointed, like, that wasn't more of a thing, like, David Wright's cookies. Yeah. 
Like, I'm disappointed in Mets Twitter a bit for not taking that. But the best part of the game for me, I think, was... Well, there were, there were two, both sides of the of the broadcast. It was the radio broadcast, which I didn't hear until the next day, with the, the, the WR calls of Howie just getting loopier and loopier. <laughs> like, really just starting to go crazy, like, doing his homage to Bob Murphy. I mean, you don't prep eight home run calls for a game, I assume. <laughs> I mean, probably not. So you just start to fall back on whatever works. And that was also the game where uh, it was a a Keith and Gary game. And Gary had Keith do play-by-play for the ninth inning. Oh my god, you're right. I and forgot then Keith, about like, that. started to play-by-play for the first pitch and then just started doing all, like, normal Keith stuff. <laughs> and, like, did not call a pitch for the rest of the inning. No, but, like, nobody cared nobody at that Nobody cared. Point. It's like... Right. <laughs> And you forget, like, just how these two broadcast. I mean, the SNY group was obviously around in 2006, but they haven't really had a good team to talk about in years. Yeah. And just how sort of, like, giddy they seem to be for the entire stretch run. That's kind of the perfect word for them. Like, they really were giddy. Like, they were watching it as fans like the rest of us. Like, how he said, I think he came out and said in the press, he's like, this is the most fun I've had as a broadcaster. And yeah. he's been doing it forever. Right. But there is something about this season. It's that sort of like moment-to-moment fandom I kind of keep trying to harp on, especially since the Mets, you know, lost in the World Series. But it's like these are the kind of moments. Like Keith just like giggling and trying to do play-by-play in the ninth <laughs> inning of a blowout and, you know, Howie doing odes to to Bob Murphy and, and Wright hitting one of the second deck his first at-bat back. And, you know, Wilmer Flores hit two home runs in that game. Suspettis tried to hit it out of the building. This stuff like that it will stay with me. Like, I mean, I, if I'm honest, like the 2006 season was only nine years ago. Mm. Um, you know, it's something I should remember more distinctly than I do. And there are moments here and there. Uh, the the Beltran walk off against the Cardinals, the Beltran walk off in the the 18 inning game, which might have actually been 2007. It does kind of blur together. <laughs> I mean, like, I remember running back and forth from the bowling alley I was into the bar to watch John Main pitch game six. Um, yeah, I remember lots of individual moments from game seven, but it's like, I don't have a good, all you're sort of left with is the emotional wreckage. You don't really yeah. get the specific moments, except like you don't get a, a really good feel. You can't really place your memories as well after nine years. Mm. So I think sort of just the moment to moment thing that I'm going to remember from the season are those kind of things. It's going to be like Keith cracking up trying to do play-by-play or, or, or watching Keith in the uh, in the media lounge, like doing his prep, watching the game, keeping score, even though he's not on TV, uh-huh. and then yelling at Lucas Duda for being played too far in when a ball got by him in the Dodgers game, like he would if he was on the broadcast. Right, but like, like yeah. I imagine he does it at home, too. Oh, I'm sure he does. <laughs> All right, what's your number three? All right, um, I'm going to change mine around. I had, like, a specific order, and it's completely blown out now. It's going to be Bartolo Colon pitching the first and the last pitches of 2015 for the Mets. I didn't even think about that, but you're right, aren't you? Because it just seems so appropriate for this team that makes absolutely no sense. Like, there was that whole drama. Like, everyone hated that he was opening, or he was pitching opening day. Like, you know, what's Terry doing? Like, all the nonsense because we'd missed baseball for months. And then it was like, yeah, Colon's going to close out the season for us, and this just feels appropriate. I'm going to I'm gonna move one of mine up, thanks. That's also a Bartolo <laughs> Colon moment. And it's, it's, it's Bartolo Colon's behind-the-back flip in the Miami game. Oh, God, yes. 
And it's only because I can't go with Fireman Bart because I said this was going to be regular season only. Um, and, and look, I, like I get that he's not at this point in his career a good major league starter. I understand that he's basically been a number five for two years running now. But I'm also at the age where the kind of aesthetics of baseball matter to me. And mm. like when he is on, there's nothing more fun to watch. No. That's, I mean, that's the appeal of Bartolo Colon. I mean, the way he set up, I mean, I wrote about this for BP because it, like, it stuck with me, but, and again, it's a playoff moment, but I'm going to throw it in here anyway. Okay. Uh, the way he I'm set up Chris Bryant too. in game four of the Cubs series, mm. and he just kept pounding the outside with two seamers, two seamers, and then he threw that little, like, I don't even know what it was. It wasn't a slide. It was a two seamer that just did something completely different to get him to swing through it after, like, 10 pitches. The way he carved up the Dodgers coming out of the pen in the in the divisional series, it is like watching like I what I imagine watching like a really good pitcher in the fifties was like, yeah, when guys just threw probably eighty eight to ninety one ninety percent of the time, <laughs> and there's there's no reason for this, but it's like baseball is supposed to be fun, and no one is more fun than Bartolo Colon. Right. Um, really underappreciated. I actually watched the video of that underhand flip the other day. I don't remember why. Eric Campbell. I mean, why not? I watch it like once a day. I mean, so. yeah. Eric Campbell is playing first base. Yeah, yeah, of course he was. <laughs> of course he was. He's like That's sort of on the periphery a lot of these moments. He was a left fielder in the Wilmer Flores game. It's like Eric Campbell's always kind of around. He's just hanging out like in the peripheral of like everything this year. All right, what's your number four? Um... All right, it's getting. This is going to kind of go back to Collins, which I know we'll talk about later. But it's his hitter sit, like right during, like right after the trade. Like, oh my God, Cespedes and Uribe and Johnson. Like, you have all these kids who have been playing for an entire, you know, season already, and he finally had a lineup that he could say you have to earn your way. And I loved that because again, it was the first time I took this team seriously all year. Like, we had the pitching. And then that was it. And I was like, oh, my God, they have so many options. It's like, how, like the bench, I mean, obviously Uribe got hurt and there were some other issues going into the playoffs. But down the stretch, their bench was probably one of the best benches in baseball. Also, the bench was better than, like, the line, like, the starters they were rolling out. Yes, that is also true. Like, a large percentage of this year. And for me, it's Jairus Familia breaks out the split-fingered fastball. <laughs> I think I, I remember I didn't actually watch the game. I think it was in the Red Sox series. It was the first time he sort of started playing around with it, sort of middle of end of August, but it was sort of amongst the panic of the Mets letting their division lead slip away per Mets Twitter. Backing into the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. But it was the Labor Day game against the Nationals, which would really get its own entry here too. But that was sort of the coming out party when he just started throwing it. Cause I think he had a couple lefties uh, in the ninth inning there. And just no one had a chance. It was 94-95 and just off the shelf. I know he made Bryce Harper look awful. This is the kind of thing I like, like weird developmental things. And yeah. the Mets have given me plenty of opportunities to sort of marvel at the Worth and Slider and some other things. But this was its own beast, even if it's just a shitty BP fastball, like all the uh, beat writers seem to think. It's an 80-grade shitty BP fastball. You know, we'll take it like as long as it works. I don't even care what it is. Yeah, and I looked at... I. Since he introduced it, we'll roughly say August and September, uh, he struck out 36 of the 110 batters he faced. Oh, my God. It's pretty good. Only walked six. It's like sort Thank of watching. I, I imagine maybe because we see him every day, it doesn't really resonate with us. But it's like 
for me watching like Wade Davis, I imagine like other teams watching Familia, we just wonder how does anyone square this guy up? Yeah. Well, I watched Wade Davis as a starter with a raise, so I'm still confused. (laughs) Reliever, relievers, man. I don't even know what to tell you. (laughs) Like we also don't thank Henry Mejia for being an idiot as much as we should. Yeah, (laughs) that's probably fair. Like we owe a lot of this season to him. Still might have rather seen him in game five than Tyler Clifford, but game four was Tyler Clifford. They all blur together. They, I mean, and also I feel bad like... Bad managerial decisions followed by bad defense. It's all... <laughs> <laughs> that's 2015. Like, yeah. that's just how it started and how it ended. All right, what's your number five? All right, now I'm, like, going through the list again. Um, this is going to be another weird, just, like, yeah. Kirk's three homers. Yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> like, because, of course. That's just... Yeah, you know, it's just going to go... He's going to go down in the record books for the most un-Kirk Nunez thing in the world because it was positive. And it's the year that the Mets went to the World Series, and he's breaking records. And none of them were probably... will be remembered for as long as his home run off, off Papelbon against the Nats. Also that the only yeah. other home run this season. I mean, can Kirk Nunez just be my moment, like, in general? <laughs> Kirk Newenheis, I'm really glad he went back to uh, Stranglehold by Ted Nugent as his walk-up music this year, too. <laughs> that made me happy. I forget what he was using last year, but it was not nearly, and maybe the beginning of this year, but it was not like, nearly as good. Like, he was an angel for 10 days. He was. Like, what? I mean, I just don't understand him. Like, if it hadn't been for the trade deadline, it would have been the best trade they made all year, which was basically Kirk Newenheis. Uh, it was basically just the angels gave the money, essentially. Right. I mean, they just, like, forked over, like, a Money tax. for nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me, it's going to be, I'm going to go off the beaten path a little bit, and it's uh, sitting on the rookie ball teams this year for the Mets in the in the GCL and Kingsport. Um, it's hot. It's miserable. I remember seeing a piece come out on Twitter that the, the, the GCL Mets had gotten into a fight with the GCL Marlins, like a brawl on the field. It's like field eight or whatever it is. So it literally is a dirt patch in St. Lucie. You're like, how does that happen? And then you're like, oh, it's because they play each other a dozen times in two months, and it's 100 degrees out for every single game. Like, and how are, how are, just ruins people. Yeah, how are there not more fights <laughs> in the GCL? Um, but I will say Kingsport is fast becoming one of my favorite trips, also because I can't go to Savannah anymore, which is essentially more of a food trip for me than a baseball trip the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last two seasons in Kingsport have been have been interesting, but this team was loaded uh, with interesting guys. And it's always fun to see guys for the first time. I'll get my Louis Carpio mention in here. Um, and it's just like it's a nice drive. My car hates driving to the Appalachians as a rule. And there's always at least one game where I'm coming back on, on I-26 and it's just downpouring the entire way from Kingsport back to Johnson City when I stay on like this like windy... hilly highway with no lights which is always fun just like Uh pouring but it's like i'm already sort of gearing up for a trip next year looking at dates and stuff like that and it's just always fun to see the uh to see the kids so i did say we also have one non-mets moment on here all right mine's not a moment it's just kevin kiermeyer existing kevin kiermeyer yeah hot center field defense Oh my god, just everything about him. Like, I watched him on a daily basis with Ray. Is like, that's like the TV broadcast I got. And he's only now getting some appreciation, but like, this is year three for him. And it's just, he's so much fun to watch. Like, I was just going back and watching videos because I could. 
and it's just everything. And I like when baseball is fun. Yeah, I'm going to jump off that and just say sort of the new young talent in baseball in general, which essentially comes down to everyone I saw at the 2013 Futures game. It's like <laughs> Carlos Correa, Miguel Sano, Francisco Lindor, Addison Russell, Jock Peterson. I think Chris Bryant was the year after, but also Chris Bryant. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's it's crazy. This is probably one of the best rookie classes in in recent memory, I didn't even mention Syndergaard and Mats, even though Mats mm-hmm. is still technically a rookie. I mean, uh, Conforto, Conforto too, yeah. sure. It's like it's crazy. And Conforto wasn't even like in baseball by the time the 2014 Futures game happened. That's probably about when he signed. But oh, God, that's so he scary. was he was in the 2015 Futures game. <laughs> I think we're we're just now reaching the point where like the incoming kids are younger than I am. Oh, I know. Man. I'm, yeah, it, that's yeah. And I will just, say I can I can tell you from from a point far off in your distant future that it doesn't get any better from there. <laughs> oh, I know. It's I mean it's mortifying. I'm like yeah, like these kids are making like I'm mean, not these kids yet, but like millions of dollars in the future, and I'm like struggling to like pay for my bedroom, like my bedroom in Jersey City. Like, I don't think Michael Conforto is going to have that issue. No, no, probably not. I don't think any of them are. That's the thing. We haven't seen a lot of like flameouts yet. No, it's it's uh, like I'm sort of muddling my way through the the BP Mets list right now, and mm. I don't know if the we'll see what happens going forward. But the no, no, no. Uh, the farm system is pretty close to yeah. Well, I think with baseball in general, like everyone's transitioned really well, and it's honestly kind of disappointing because like twistedly, I like going like yeah, this kid is an ace in AAA and like can't pitch a strike in the majors. Oh, I think those will still continue to uh, be around. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it too much. <laughs> so the other news of the week, such as it is, we'll start sort of transitioning into off-season stuff. Terry Collins, unsurprisingly, to the surprise of literally no one, <laughs> got a two-year extension. I've been trying to find... There's a quote I had on TC from the pod. I think after his last extension, I wanted it to as an open for one of the horrible playoff losses where it's sort of like at some point we have Terry Collins with a good team. And we're all going to have to live with it. And we uh, saw that this year. That's what we saw Yeah, for the, for the good and the bad. Um, I mean, this was going to happen. It's what happens when you go to the world series on your, like the year before your option year, you get an extension. Yeah. And I think the idea at the front office can't believe what he does in terms of you know pitcher management specifically is kind of crazy because they've had plenty of opportunities to sit him down or sit him and Dan Worthen down and say no this is how you're going to use these young starting pitchers this is how you're going to manage your bullpen um and they haven't done that yeah I'm still I'm just not I mean I don't know enough about how that place runs to understand that I mean, I think the thing you can say about him that is fair, and look, we can get into how much day-to-day he manages the clubhouse, which I think might be a bit overblown. You know, he's not, I don't think he's a beloved manager. And I think even Collins would admit, and has admitted in the press, that he delegates a lot of stuff uh, stuff to the vets, you know, David Wright, Michael Kadire, mm. uh, Uribe, and Kelly Johnson uh, when they came in at the uh, 
at the trading deadline. And look, there was when Wright wasn't around earlier in this year, you could find plenty of media members that would grumble about how the clubhouse was kind of reticent and not talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> it was not hard but to buy. But also Wright was not around when the team was really bad. That's also true, yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot of the, and they were playing a lot of kids like, you know, Campbell and Munnell and Siciliani that don't have a ton of experience dealing with the New York media. Right. Or media in general. It's not even like they're coming from like small markets. But the team didn't fall apart is the thing. And I think he's got to get credit for that. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, you know, if he's delegating, that's a lot of like a manager's job too. Just any, I mean, any business, not even just baseball. Like you you know the people that can do it for you. Yeah, he's been there long enough now that you would think he has a feel for it. Right. And what it comes down to him, there are people that especially – given his management of the staff in the in the World Series, might still be yelling at clouds or whatever about the extension. But who are you replacing him with? Yeah. Bud Black? You getting Bud Black? I thought it was going to be Wally Backman. Yeah, it's always Wally Backman. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I pulled up I am some... not doing another segment relating to TC and Wally Backman until no. literally TC gets fired for Wally Backman. <laughs> In five years with the Mets, Collins has put up a five thirty. No, I'm sorry, four eighty six. That's not like bad. That's considering not, that, that gets people again, fired. It seems they've been rolling out for years. Sure, I mean, I think it probably in any other in I shouldn't say in any other, but in other situations, he probably doesn't get a a second contract or doesn't get to the end of his second contract. But the the front office had patience with him and. They were rewarded. I don't know if there's a correlation or a causation thing here, but I do think after this season, he's maybe a little bit easier to root for from my perspective. I completely agree. Like, and yet, you know, the in-game stuff, we know, we know he has to work on, you know, we know that's the issue. But I think it is, I think it is the package deal. Like, this is what you get. And it's not just him, it's Dan Worthen too. Like, you get, Mm -hmm. you get the Worthen slider and you get, Dan Worthen saying, no, no, he's fine. Put him out there for another inning. You get <laughs> yeah. both. That's part of the package deal, and you got to live with it. Yeah. And the people, there's plenty of people like, oh, look at the records in June and July. Like, that was not Terry's fault, like, whatsoever. You can only do so much when Daryl Siciliani is your starting center fielder. I mean, there's they were starting a lot of guys that, you know, semi-regularly, a couple times a week, that are not going to make the 40-man roster as of two weeks from now. Right. And that's not, you know, it's injuries. It's things out of his control. Speaking of the 40-man roster, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the 40-man roster. I know it's very exciting, but it is (laughs) off-season Avenue audio. We have four extra weeks of podcast we would have done in October to catch up on. discussion from the 2015 regular season into the 2015 offseason with Brian Salvatore and we'll start with early roster movements very exciting Eric Young Jr. Wilfredo Tovar and Anthony Recker have all been outrighted and declared free agency um yeah sure I might have kept Wilfredo Tovar I'll say it <laughs> Guess how old Wilfredo Tovar is. Guess how old Wilfredo Tovar is. Uh, 
See, I feel like it's going to be higher than I'm expecting. Let me say 24. He is 24. Very good. Wow. Well, he's been around forever. It just feels like he should be like 26 or 27. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he was so young when he signed. Yeah. And they and he's one of the Omar guys that got pushed uh, stateside and up the ladder fairly quickly. I think he was 18. He might have been 17 in Savannah his first year there, his first taste of it. You might have spent some of that season in Savannah. Go back and look it up. I think it was a trivia question at one point back in the uh, old, old days. Back um, in the Rob days. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's going to get – he'll kick around because he's a good shortstop. He'll sign somewhere else. Um, and, you know, it might they might even try and bring him back somehow. It's sure. Just the 40-man roster crunch is pretty serious right now. Yeah. And he had the right as a – you know, a guy that's been in the system for six years to declare free agency. It's something you do and see what other opportunities are out there. I mean, you think he would fit because he's a good glove, that he might be a useful, like, caddy if they really want to go forward with Wilmer Flores at shortstop. But he's had some injury issues the last few years, too, which I think doesn't help. Um, you know, it's probably rec- a little bit, too, of, uh, you know, this front office didn't, didn't really uh, produce him, didn't really develop him. Sure. And maybe they weren't as impressed with him as the previous front office was. And so maybe they just want to get another look. And there's not going to be, you know, a ton of infield reps available in Vegas next year for him anyway. So, I mean, Chikini's probably going to be the everyday shortstop there. Uh, you know, Mazzilli at second. I don't even know at third. Maybe Mono if he comes back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he cleared when he was uh, put through waivers. He did, so he'll yeah. still be around. Probably in Vegas. So there's not, he's kind of the, I mean, he was kind of already the odd man out to a certain extent this year. So see what he can do elsewhere. Um, I'm guessing they're going to go for a cheap, uh, non roster invitee type for their third catcher again, probably. So Rucker was going to get non tendered regardless. I'll say yeah. that I, I, I do kind of hate to see him go, but I'd love to see him walk away. <laughs> and he, he might also be the non roster invitee. They end up, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he might be back. That uh, the forty-man roster currently stands at thirty-seven, as we record this on Monday night, and they're going to need to make some more moves. So, who else goes? Do you think? Uh, I think Buddy Carlisle's days are numbered. Yeah, I, I, if he know, doesn't retire, nice no one seems to know if he can pitch. Yeah, yeah, uh, that seems like a pretty obvious uh, space clear there. I also wouldn't be surprised if Carlos Torres was given his papers, even though I think there's a use for yeah. him. I don't know if he's necessarily going to stick around on the 40-man. You might be right, but I have like six or seven names here. I did not list Torres. Okay. Again, nothing wrong with Torres. He's you know he's a useful guy to have in your system. I just don't know what the names they have to protect this year. He's a, if... he's a proven-ish major league reliever, whereas Dario Alvarez is not. Right. Uh, so I might but the upside on Alvarez is probably a little bit higher than the upside uh, on uh, Torres. I don't know about that. Again, it's like the, the proven major league reliever. Um, Jack Leathersitch, which is kind of shitty if they do it, but they did it yeah. with, with Jeff Walters. So, I mean, they brought Walters back on a, on like a minor league deal when that happened. And they might try to do the same thing with Leathersitch. That's the kind of thing that gets you a grievance sometimes. Yeah, if he wants yeah. to be a a bit of a stickler about it, but I think it is something that happens. And um, what will eight percent of Mets Twitter do? Yeah, yeah I know. Um, 
And then a couple bats. I think Daryl Siliani, Eric Campbell, and Johnny Manel. Yeah, those are the three I had as well. As I, I'm clearly somehow Campbell's going to survive probably because they don't need to clear that many spots at least right away. But I think Siliani and Manel probably. Again, they'll they'll bring in some non-roster dude as a catcher, and then add them to the forty yeah. like on April first or something if they need to, or right, not, right. or just keep two catchers until they actually need to make a move. Manel is one of those guys that you know he uh, every system likes to have a guy like that in there, but on the forty man to have three catchers that are that young just doesn't make sense. How old is Manel? Manel is... No, he's not that young. Oh, he's older than I thought he was. Look at that. Yeah, he's like a he's like, he's like a bounce-around double-A dude for most of his yeah. career. He was always a, a, a bit of a weird one when they uh, when they signed him. Yeah, looking at the 40-man, those are the, the obvious ones. Is there anybody that you think has an outside shot of getting uh, outrighted that... Would kind of shock people. Um, Neuenheis. I don't see it happening. I think sort of the standard I, I'm going to apply for forty man ads, you know, specifically outfielders, is that they should be better than Kirk Neuenheis. He's like the <laughs> he's like the level of acceptable forty man bat. I think. Okay. I can buy that. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be I mean they DFA'd him before. So Yeah. And it's not like he was that great. Uh if you look at no. his at his season numbers, three home run game aside. Um take a quick scan here. I feel like that's the main difference. You know, it's funny, my Mets fandom sort of amped up at the the highest incline during the Omar years. And I feel like Newenheis is the guy if he was on an Omar team, he'd have a roster spot forever. Yeah, I could see he's just that. that he, he's just that guy, you know. So uh, it's still taking some time to adjust to the fact that we don't have to keep bad players around because uh, and look, I mean, they he's, have heart. He's a useful, like, shuttle guy when you need an outfielder for two weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got some sort of a major league track record. You know, you know he can get hot for two weeks. Um, he's a known quantity. He knows the locker room. You know, that kind of stuff matters. Um, okay, here's one. Rafael Montero. Ooh, yeah, that's... I would be fairly shocked, but they they seem to be pretty pissed at him. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be that shocked, honestly. It, it depends on what the actual state of his right shoulder is, I think, is what it comes down to. Yeah, because you really can't release him. Again, that's asking for a grievance if you're making up an injury to get rid of him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that, I mean, I'm a guy that's been a fan of Montero's for a long time. And I think a lot of us who have been following him for the last few years always kind of hoped he'd be, he'd be something in the majors, whether a reliever or a starter. And I, I just, I, it seems like every couple months something else comes out. You hear, you hear whispers. And this front office just does not particularly care for him for reasons that seem totally valid. I'm I, not saying they have it out for him. I don't think it's the front office per se. I mean, this is one of the first dudes they signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Deep Podesta has raved about him over the years too. It's just, it's just one of those when, when relationships like that go that badly in baseball. I mean, it's not 
it was a little bit different with Pueyo because he was out of options anyway. So they could kind of like melodramatically, not really melodramatically, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Cut him in August for, you know, pay him whatever was left on the, the major league per diem. Because, you know, in 60 day he gets major league salary. So he was getting the five, five fifty or whatever it is you know, pay him the rest of that and just sort of get him out of the complex if you want to be. I guess it's kind of dramatic in its own way. Uh, I don't know if they do with Montero. I'm just trying to go off the board a little bit here. I don't think they will because he's so young and they have so much more. You know, he's got whatever. They had him two years ago. He got two more option years left, I think. Mm-hmm. I have to go back and look at uh, yeah, he got them two more. Um, you know, and, and there's enough. There's been enough of a talented arm in there and flashes in the past you give that dude every chance to get back from whatever he's getting back from the uh, the only other name that I sort of kicked around I don't think it's going to happen but again it wouldn't be the most surprising would be Josh Edgen only if they bring in another lefty like a Blevins if they bring him back on a deal because then you got a lot of guys throwing from the left hand side and Edgen just hasn't really put it together just yet yeah and he's still probably not going to be back until his surgery before I mean, it was probably, let's say it was roughly around the same time as Wheeler's. I forget exactly when it was, but mm-hmm. you're probably not seeing him until roughly the All-Star break anyway. I mean, you only have to carry him for the off-season, then you have then you can 60-day him, but right. you know, how many guys are you going to do that with? Yeah. Because you have to do it with Wheeler, and uh, I guess he's the major one right now. You know, whatever they mm-hmm. end up doing with Leathersitch. Mm-hmm. So the other sort of roster movement of the past week is free agents, specifically Mets free agents. So of the, I believe it's eight 2015 Mets who are now free agents, who might you want back? I mean, I think everybody wants Bartolo back. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? uh, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I, I think I think a one-year deal for Cologne makes a lot of sense. Sure. He's insurance against uh, an injury to a starter. He proved in the playoffs he can pitch out of the bullpen pretty well. And he seems like one of the few guys that everybody in baseball can agree is wonderful. And you, you like having that guy around. It's him and Juan Uribe. Yeah. And like I get I get the argument for, for Kelly Johnson over Juan Uribe. It's lefty balance for the infield because you have a very right-handed leaning infield um, between Tejada... Flores, Wright, and probably Herrera. So getting that lefty bat in there that can play those three positions. Shortstop, technically, I guess. Sure, whatever. Um, and a little he bit of He played one game of shortstop. He did. Year. And a little bit of former outfield and a pinch, too. Yeah. Um, he gives you a little bit more versatility than Uribe. The handedness is right. Oh, man, but man, Juan Uribe. <laughs> I know there's not room for both, and I know Kelly Johnson makes more sense, but still, it is a little disappointing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I, Cologne is definitely the, the priority, I would think, of the free agents. Um, what do you think it would take to get him on a one-year deal? I don't know. Um, like, he can... I don't know what the market's going to bear for him. I think he could probably... I mean, he's been a very, if not great, very durable starter the last two years. So maybe someone gives him a two-year deal. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's it's a 
it is a tough ask for a 42 year old <laughs> to get a two year I mean, deal. Met, the Mets were were somewhat laughed at for giving him a two year deal two years ago. Yeah, and this is two years later, in, in which his effectiveness has diminished slightly. So, yeah, I mean, let's see. As a Met, he threw, not counting the playoffs. 397 innings across those two seasons. He was 14% worse in league. as the RA plus. I don't want the RA plus. Let me look at this. 4.33. So, yeah, he was you know, a below average durable starting pitcher, essentially. That has value. Mm-hmm. You know, and if he was 35 instead of 42... I just feel like he can do this forever, though. Um, yeah. But realistically, I mean, he can probably get a starting pitching role next year with somebody for $8 million. I just don't think the Mets can offer him that without moving some other pieces around. I don't think they can go higher than four or five. Yeah. For the for the role that he'd be playing. No, I agree with that. Next year. I don't think he's a guy who's going to necessarily give you the hometown discount either. Not that it's a hometown. You, you know what I'm saying? Though. I don't think he's a guy who's going to give you the discount. No, I don't. I honestly, like I've said before, Bartolo is rather inscrutable for me. I don't know what drives him. <laughs> <laughs> so the two big free agents we should talk about: Daniel Murphy and Yoannis Cespedes. Murphy has already been offered the qualifying offer. Cespedes had it contractually. Um, limited that teams couldn't and it wouldn't have mattered since they traded for him mid-season anyway so the qualifying offer is on Murph's table we'll start there he has until friday to accept it's already been leaked that the colorado rockies have interest because of course they do it's the colorado rockies <laughs> right uh we can get into whether you know how i mean he he seems like a good fit um and it is a very rockies move to sign him to play first base yeah yeah it is so he's obviously um, being shocked somewhat in front of this QO deadline. Do you think there's anything to read into that? In so much that he might be thinking about accepting it. Well, you know, Murphy came out, I think was it last off season and basically said he would take a discount to stay in New York. I think Here's yeah, I got, think he got, he got 8 million in arbitration. He's like, "Oh yeah, that's, that's a good that's, that's enough money to play baseball." Essentially was like his reaction. <laughs> Yeah, so if there's any guy who's going to take the qualifying offer, I think Murph is the type of guy who would do it. Uh, if his agent is worth anything, he would advise him strongly against that. Murph's stock is probably never going to be higher than it is right now. Um, but I still think he's going to want a multi-year deal someplace. And Rocky's going to Rocky. You know, I could <laughs> see them offering him... Uh, you think what three years, four years? And I could see them going like four forty-eight, something yeah, like that. Uh, you don't turn down that kind of money. No, um, and I believe I, I assume the Rockies have a protected pick this year because they were not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so that lessens the impact of giving him a uh, a contract under the qualifying offer. You know, if if you were. If he really wanted to stay and wanted to be a little cynical about it, he could use, he could leverage maybe accepting the qualifying offer into like a, a shorter, a longer term deal with less AAV with the Mets, I mean like 336 
I could see that. I mean, it wouldn't be good for the Mets, <laughs> right? <laughs> necessarily, if they don't, they, they have shown absolutely no interest in signing him so far. But you know, sixteen million ish next year takes a big chunk of whatever their offseason budget might be. That's true. And that, and I say things like that, and it's like, like, come on, really? That's is that something that, that could really happen and blow up their offseason budget? And there's a sort of idea that he and Cespedes both gave the Mets an out with their performance in the World Series. Yes. And, and maybe Cespedes in the, in the postseason generally. Ownership should not get a pass on this. I mean, no, you, they they got millions and millions yeah. in revenue from this postseason. Like, you don't know what you're getting from David Wright at third next year or Dilson Herrera at second. Now, I don't know what if, if there's a deal necessary that makes sense for both parties, uh, Murph and the Mets, that sort of bridges that. If you if you're really going to pay him to be a super utility type, but I don't think it should be a money. It should come down specifically to dollars, like raw dollars. And look, Suspetus, I looked at his Marcel projection today at, at Baseball Reference. The 790 OPS, slugging heavy, admittedly, mm-hmm. and 26 home runs. That's probably better than what they're going to end up with there in center field next year. Absolutely. Um, I would like them to re-sign Cespedes if possible, but I, I think that's even less likely than Murph accepting a qualifying offer. No, nope, I agree. And it's does that deal go bad for them? Yes, in all likelihood, at the end of it, mm-hmm. would I be? As concerned if I thought the twenty five million a year contract they might have been forced to offer Suspedis if he continued to just go lights out in the playoffs would be spent on other players and not pocketed or going to the you know, the Urban Picard and the trustees or mm-hmm. wherever else the money gets socked away to debt service. Yeah, then I wouldn't be it wouldn't be such a big deal to me, but I don't think I think what I just outlined is what is going to happen with that money that might have been theoretically earmarked for Suspedes if there was a situation where they couldn't let him walk. I also think that he presents an interesting opportunity for the Mets. If, you know, we hear all this talk, and I don't know how much of it is, is actually meaningful at all about, you know, New York being a Yankees town. And I think that if the Mets re-signed Cespedes with the Cuban population in New York, he could be a really big boon to getting... Cuban fans out to City Field next year and for years in the future. And that's an investment that you don't see on the field, but is a quality investment on the team's part. And I think that when you talk about signing a contract, a player to a big contract, you want to have certain um, fringe benefits like that come along with the contract. So I think his contract makes more sense than, than a Murphy contract. I don't know who Murphy brings out to the ballpark next year. Well, Murphy's not making enough money where I think those sort of like externalities really come into play mm-hmm. either. That's fair. It's like with Curtis, it's like a Curtis Granderson type deal. Yeah. I mean, Granderson, look, he's a nice clubhouse presence. He's good with the media and he's probably a, a good mentor for younger players and stuff like that. But again, at the end of the day, it's like a 60, it's not even $60 million. It's just not, it's, you know, it's a middle class type deal. You're just trying to get production out of him. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, you know, if you're, the Seattle Mariners and you're signing Robbie Cano for 250 million or whatever ridiculous number it was, you know, that's sort of like you're trying to make a a star in a 
baseball city that doesn't really have one. I mean, I know they had Felix, but an everyday player. It's like a star-making kind of deal. Or like Pujols in, in Anaheim. It's like a statement move. Right. Do you think the Mets even make an offer, a contract offer to uh, Suspense? No. no. Yeah. <laughs> they were leaking that they wouldn't less than 24 hours after they lost Game 5 of the World Series. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even wait for the body on the season to be cold. They're like, yeah, we're not actually probably going to spend any money now. <sighs> and like every single beat had it within 24 hours. So it was a concerted... I won't say that. I will say it certainly looked like to the outside observer <laughs> like a concerted effort to tamp down expectations through the media. That sounds fair. If I were to attempt such a thing, it would have looked a lot like that. <laughs> I might have waited more than 24 hours, though. Well, yeah. Uh, the only other free agent I would really go after from the Mets is I would want to bring back Jerry Blevins. Yeah, Jerry Blevins is awesome. And they need a, they need another... They need to throw some lefty spaghetti at the wall anyway, so. Yeah. Last year he signed for 2.5, or sorry, 2.4 with the Nationals. He'll probably come a little bit cheaper than that coming off the injury. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what you're going to get out of a dude that broke his forearm twice. Yeah. <laughs> across like four months, but yeah, give it a shot. Why not? Plus that Twitter avatar. It is, on. yeah. His whole Twitter presence is excellent for a a Major League Baseball player. Which I know is not a very high bar to get over. But. No, it's not. Uh, uh, what would you offer your eBay to come back? Uh, 216, something like that. Sounds about fair. He's been good. Yeah. That was real fast. I mean, the last... Yeah, he's another guy that's older than you think, because he's going to be uh, 37 right before opening day, but... You know, his last three years by OPS Plus, you know, 116, 120, 105. He's still a pretty good defender that can play second and third. That's a useful player. Yeah, especially with Wright's uncertainty next year. Yeah, I mean, I feel a little more... I I guess you're still going to use Kelly Johnson if that happens every day at third or maybe Flores, but I just feel a little more confident with your rebay in that spot. I, don't know. I mean, there's only so many roster spots, so I understand yeah, I why they're not going to offer him anything, but it is unfortunate. I don't see them bringing back both those guys. I mean, you can't. They're essentially redundant. Yeah. I mean, they were redundant when they traded for them, but I mean, at that time, it was sort of your rebate. Plugging in every day at third base until if and when Wright proved he was healthy, and you know, Kate, Kelly Johnson was more of a second baseman, and he could play some outfield corner, so... But as far as the 2016 Mets go, they're going to kind of both be that sort of third base, second base spot. So you go with the lefty, given who's going to be uh, starting there, probably. Agreed. All right, now we'll move on to everyone's favorite offseason topic, the Rule 5 Draft. a long-standing tradition here on Amazing Avenue Audio that we talk about how we're not going to spend that much time on the Rule 5 Draft, and then we spend too much time on the Rule 5 Draft, like clockwork, every November. And here with me to do just that is Greg Karam. Greg, 
Rule five draft right. time. It's rule five draft. Hey, hey, dude, this is like uh, you know Christmas for us off season junkies. It is. I mean, not really. No, it's not that exciting. <laughs> so the Mets forty man roster is currently at thirty seven, not counting Henry Mejia because Henry Mejia doesn't count. It's true. I think they still technically have to tender him a contract because he's already eligible. Um. Well, or not. Or not, right. But if they tendered him, they don't have to keep him on the 40 or pay him until his suspension is up. Ooh. That, I don't know. See, I, w- I was thinking about it beforehand, but with that... Mm. He's getting shoveled in the Winter League. The hair's yep. coming back, though. I saw a picture. He's growing it back out. I'm torn. Uh, I'm in favor of hair. I did... I went through my phone because my phone was kept telling me that I was like running out of space on it. And just deleted a bunch of photos. I like one off for a Twitter joke, so I need to clean out my like photo albums. I deleted all my Henry Mejia pictures. I'd make a clean, oh. I'd make a clean break. Wow, that's like a breakup. It is. <clears throat> I know where to find him if it, uh, <laughs> if necessary again. Though <laughs> I was really disappointed. I had to get rid of the one with him like sitting in spring on like one of the benches in a backfield with his batting helmet on backwards. I really like that. One. <laughs> oh, that one was good. That was like my Facebook header for a while. That's true. Yeah, that was a good one. But regardless, the uh, Mets will be able to clear more space with more outrights and non-tenders coming in the coming days. They have until the 20th to sort of set their roster for Rule 5 purposes. So we'll assume they're going to have enough space to add whoever they want because this looks less complicated than it did four months ago, Greg. Yeah, well, when you trade... Um... <laughs> Every single pitcher that needed to be added to the Rule yeah, 5. 10, 10... 10-12 guy. I mean, literally. Um, well, Fulmer, the, uh, Michael Fulmer, <laughs> Luis Sessa, and Matty Cook all would have had to have been added for Rule 5 protection purposes this year. Uh, the Tigers already purchased uh, Sessa's contract because he would have been minor league free agent eligible because he's been around forever. He came up as a shortstop or an infielder uh, in summer league ball, so he's sort of kicked around for a while. I didn't see anything on Cook, but I don't think he has to be added until the 20th because he was a 2012 college pick. Fulmer would have had to have been added as a 2011 high school pick and probably would have been. But that uh, definitely cuts down on the, like, bubble guys. Right, right. It's not it's not that uh, complicated this year, it really. But, but we will do our due diligence. We'll start with sort of – I outlined this a little bit last year quickly. We'll sort of go in more in-depth on it this year. So, Greg, you want to add a player – to your 40-man roster to protect them from the Rule of Five draft. What should you consider? Number one, what is the upside of this player? I think that's like foremost for me, the first thing you look at. Okay. So if this player like they, if this player is a top 10 prospect in your system, we'll set it roughly there. Uh, sort of the Gabriel Yanoa rule from last year. Like okay. you add you add that guy. Um, this even, year, even if even if he's like. Okay, we'll, we'll get into continue. we'll get into this. We'll get into this. I know we'll who continue. you're thinking about. We heard this again. We'll yep. get into this. Um, <laughs> I would say even for someone like uh, Marcos Molina, who's going to be back with us in 2017 at the end of that season, I believe he'll have to be added to the uh, to the Rule Five to the 40 mm-hmm. for Rule Five protection purposes. I think if he comes back and the stuff's there, you have to add him. Conversely, yeah, yeah. we'll get to that in 2016. Yeah. Con- <laughs> Conversely, if you think a player. Could be useful as soon as next season, but let's say a loogie, or is Cody Satterwhite. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe you take your chances. 
I do think if you think the guy's a major league contributor, as we sort of had with our Logan Verrett conversation last year, yeah. I think you have to at least uh, consider adding him, though. I agree. So number two, go down the list. And so we'll bring up Logan Verrett again. Can this player help the team in 2016? So obviously Logan Verrett looked decent in his sort of relief swing man spot start role this year down the stretch. A useful player that maybe they should have added instead of Akil Morris last year. Uh, But Hansel Robles, another good example of this. You know, not a guy with a ton of upside, but a guy that helped the team in 2016, gave you major league value. I don't think either guy made my top 25 last year, but maybe they should have made my top 25 because they returned major league value in 2015. <laughs> maybe that's something I need to consider more. <clears throat> so you don't have a guy with a ton of upside. Maybe he's another year away. Well, number three, what's the likelihood this player actually gets picked? God, like predicting who actually goes in the Rule 5 draft, as I, as I like to remind people, Darren Gorsey was rumored to go 1-1 a couple of years ago. It really could be anybody. But generally, the type of guy that gets picked in the Rule 5 draft falls into a couple general categories. The big arm, no clue guy. Uh, Reiner Cruz, Mets fans might remember, sort of the primary uh-huh. example of that. Uh, John Del Gustave got selected last year, even though he didn't stick. Um, fast dude at a premium position. Uh, <laughs> the two best examples of this last year were uh, Odubel well, Herrera and Delano De Shields Jr. Yeah. Both of whom were pretty decent major league regulars. Yeah, they return value. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, useful lefty. <laughs> Sean Gilmartin. Sean Gilmartin. There's a million of these guys you should pop around. Um, guys without positional flexibility or just one carrying tool are tough to hide. Um, you know, 45s across the board. Let's say Brad Emus <laughs> hmm. might be a better overall player than some of these guys that get picked, but they're harder to keep for a full year than, like, you know, somebody with 70 raw power but can only get really into play against lefties. You can mm-hmm. hide that guy for a year. You can find yeah. a use for him. Which brings us to number four. What's the likelihood this guy can actually stick for a whole season? Which I think just sort of doubles us back to relievers that we can use one inning at a time once a week. And speed guys that can play a premium defensive position. Because you always use him as a caddy or a pinch runner or a fifth outfielder type. So is that the whole list? That's the whole list. Okay. I, I agree with your list. I almost – I think that that's the way that front offices kind of look at it. I would almost look at it in reverse order mm. where I, I kind of think like what's the likelihood this guy's going to get picked and stick on a team? It's always uh, tough to know though. I mean sometimes you get <clears throat> rumors and feelers. I mean I'm sure you have you – know, organizational spies or you know scouts talk so maybe you have a line on somebody it's just so tough to know like who had sean gill martin getting picked last year right like just an average double a starter without a big fastball or really a loogie profile yeah and where i think you see this where i think that's more of a consideration is in the position player uh category because you can't really you can't you can hide a lefty in the bullpen for the whole year i don't think you can hide a position player on your bench the whole year He's got to have to play. Right, and what, that's what you saw with, with Herrera and DeShields, is they played and they were good, so they stuck. Uh, right. Justin Bohr, another example of that, too. I mean, he mm. was more of a platoon type, but he was still you know, a pretty useful player for a second division team. 
And a lot of times you see sort of like second division teams have more use for these kind of guys. Uh, I mean, the Astros turned into a first division team, but, you know, going into the season, they probably didn't. Oh, they took the Shields from the Astros. He ended up on Texas. Am I screwing this up? No, I think you have that right. I think he was on the Astros. Yeah, he was on the Astros and then he ended up on Texas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Texas might have considered themselves a second division team at, uh, it worked out at the beginning of the season. It worked out for the Mets too, with with Gil Martin, obviously. Though they, their usage patterns with him were certainly odd during the year. So that brings yeah. us to the list of names, and it's not very long. No, <laughs> we'll start at the top, and I think whether we go with your number one criteria or my number one criteria, we're protecting Brandon Nemo. Yeah, no questions. I mean, I'm down on him, obviously, but he takes all the boxes here. He's a top prospect with some sort of major league future that has already had time in AAA, would obviously go, I say obviously, hell knows with the Rule 5 draft, but would obviously go 1-1, I think, in this draft. Yeah. And could survive for a year as a fifth outfielder. And he's, you know, he's lefty, he has a platoon advantage, you can find use for him. So, of course, they will add him. Yes. I don't think really much more needs to be said about that. No, it's the most obvious ad you could think of. You know, it's the Noah Syndergaard of this year. I mean, not that level of prospect, but the same kind of like, just like, okay, he needs to be added, you add him. Mm-hmm. Robert Gazelman is next on the list for me. Yeah. I think, you know, is he going to be ready this year? Probably not. Is he a top 10 prospect? He's in the conversation. Could you? Could a team hide him for a year as a fastball curve reliever? Probably. Uh, they protected Gabriel Yanoa last year at a similar place in the development curve and with similar developmental issues still to be addressed. So I imagine the same here. And they need starting pitching depth. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of, they didn't really need it last year. They need it this year. And he's a guy that, you know, maybe he shows you something in spring, pushes the AAA fast. He could be up by the end of the year in some no, sort of role. It's certainly yeah, possible. Absolutely. He had a very good year. I mean, he, he kind of plat- he, he, plat- he plat- oh he plateaued a little bit in Double A. Yeah, but you know, the first half of the year he was he was dominant, and he put himself on the map this year, which is more than you could say before the year. I mean, he was he was in the conversation, but he wasn't you know a prospect prospect. Yeah, something I'd like to get into with people on the Mets who might know better than than I would. It really did seem like in Double A this year they had all their dudes throwing their worst secondary pitches over and over again. Just like pumping him, just yeah. To... Like Gazelman throwing his change a lot more than his curve. Lugo was throwing his slider a lot more than his curve. Uh, you know, was throwing his two breaking balls more than his change. I wonder if it is some sort of like developmental directive. Well, that would make sense. Hmm. Yeah, you know, screw the results and and work on that pitch. That's going to put you over the top. I mean, that's what we said, right? I mean, he's got the fastball. I mean, yep. location. He's got the curve, and the change is what needs to come. This is a perfunctory discussion because he's already been added, but Josh Smoker. Yeah. Well, like you said, lefty. This, this, throw, is, this is the dude that gets picked. <laughs> yeah. He throws 97. I mean, they had to add him. He'd be a minor league free agent anyway, too. Yeah. So that's a guy who's going to get – got to go on the on the list. You know, the question is why why maybe they didn't give him a look back in September yeah, if you're going to do that. You, know? yeah, yeah. you said that there's no spots, but they, they, they I were do able feel to hold like, spot, you know, I will say this. For, yeah. Bitching about Josh Smoker not getting a shot down the stretch, it literally feels like it happened nine months ago. <laughs> yeah. Since everything that's happened since then, I'm just like, oh yeah, I, I like, I bitched about that on the podcast like four weeks running. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it would have been nice to get a look just to see what you sort of have. Um, you know, he may be Rob Carson or Jack Leathersitch, but there's some setup dude upside there, I think. And it's 98 from the left side. You can stick that dude in a major league pen now. Yeah, it's definitely a guy you want to hang on to. So that, those are the three, well, since smokers are already added, Gazelman and Nimmo are really the two slam dunks left. Right. But my number one criterion does require that we discuss when we're Becerra now. Right. So then the question is, I mean, this is a top 10 prospect in the med system. Yes. I think that that's without question. And he's a, he's a, boy, he's a right fielder. Yes. Okay. So that kind of limits, he's a corner, you know, he's a corner outfield guy. He's a good um, athlete, but right. he's not necessarily someone with enough professional reps to be like, eh, you can maybe play center once a week for me. And this is a guy who's going to be starting in high A. Yes. He's going to be starting in St. Lucie. Yes. He uh, might get to double A by the end of the year. Right. So you'd have to be hiding a guy of that quality on your 25-man all year. Right. Uh, so for that reason, you know, I might I might not want to add him. So I think they're going to have the space to do this if they want to. Well, this is this – is, um, Something else I was thinking about was that this team's not going to be as much running on the fringes as they were in previous years. You know, where, where you have a guy like Danny Mono, you know, your Campbells, you, these guys that you're bringing up constantly on the fringes of your roster. So I don't, I, I don't know necessarily that they're going to be in such a roster crunch that they can't afford to add him. But I'm just thinking from a, I don't think that they like from a pure game theory whatever i don't think that they necessarily have to add so here's the argument against i would say he's still a ways away you're probably looking at if he finishes the year in double a maybe i think he's gonna take some development time you're talking about september 2017 at the earliest it's tough to stick as a right field only bat he would not hit 200 in the majors right now and if you do hide him for a year so maybe there's some Incentive to just bury a roster spot, which is tough to do. But at the end of the day, if you're getting like a potential, like real impact player, maybe you do it. Is Becerra that guy? I don't know. I like him, but there's a lot of developmental work still there, and it's still a corner profile. And the tools are loud, but they're not. There's not like one big standout tool there. You know, it's like 60 raw power, 60 arm, 55 run. Is he going to hit enough? It's a nice player, a top 10 guy in this system. It's just, and you, you know, you start the option clock. So if you think he moves quickly, it's not a big deal. But if he's more of a level by level guy, suddenly there's some sort of upward pressure, pressure as we saw with uh, Cesar Pueyo. Right. Yeah, so I, I'm not. I'm not. I don't really feel that they they have to add him. I think they should. You think they should? I think they should. It's not. I'm not going to rant on the podcast in two weeks if they don't. But I think they should take a shot here and protect him. Okay. I. I mean, given their history, I think that they will. It is the they, kind of guy they do seem to add. Yeah. Like yeah, he's they, a, he's they, a more obvious add to me than Akil Morris, for example. Yeah. Well, they they, they look at guys. Well. Yes, I would agree with that. That I mean, adding a Keel Morris in retrospect, poor decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Somebody, <laughs> somebody on this podcast, I feel, I have to go back and look. It was a year ago. No, no. Might have been saying that. Yes, you were. Yeah. And we, we settled on they should have protected Logan Brett, though we both didn't think that he would get picked or stick anywhere. Um, and I guess that was true in the end. Yeah. But, but two um, teams did take shots on him. Yes. And, hey, maybe they should have stuck with him because he was a pretty decent player. Yeah. Are there any other sort of dark horse candidates here? I was looking over the list on TBG Mets, and I wasn't. It's like yeah, no. it's like Kyle Johnson. Yeah, Kyle. I mean, there's 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 that guy. Um, it's like the so my my standard for outfielders is going to be are they better than Kirk Newenheis? Because I feel like he is the last outfielder on the forty. <laughs> well, I think you could you could maybe make an argument for protecting a guy like Travis yeah. Tyrone this year. I don't. Um, that's another guy where it's like that's like. If Wilmer Becerra's development path goes bad in a couple of years, that's what that looks like. Sure. But I think that, one, I think that they they could somebody could take a flyer on him just to bring him into camp and t- take a look at him. Yeah, so what? Then somebody has Travis Tyrone. True. Yeah, it's, but... it's, not the, it's not the end of the world. That's not my feeling with Kyle Johnson. Someone takes Kyle Johnson. I mean, they got him for unloading Colin Calgill, essentially, if yeah. I recall correctly. But they don't have a lot of depth in the outfield. I mean, no, that's true. So I, I just feel like he's, you know, is Andy he really going to be better than any sort of like non-roster invitee? They're going to pop up though. No, probably not. But you know, you never, you never know with these kind of guys. I mean, he hit he hit twenty five home runs last year. I mean, he struck out a bunch. But he's got he's got a quick Vegas. bat. I know. Vegas. I know. I'm just saying, maybe worth a shot. Maybe worth a shot. Paul Seawald. You want like a random reliever? Well, I mean, you're talking about a right-handed reliever. That throws 86 to 88. 86 to 88? 86 to 88, Greg. Okay, well, hey. uh, You know what? He does it at every level, though. It just works. Like, I've seen him close to 10 times now, and he just makes it work. It's a lot of sliders. Jesus. I thought thought from, like, hearing you talk about him that he had been better than that. It's uh, 86 to 88. Oh, well. Wow, wow, wow. Do we, uh, um, the okay. other question, I guess, uh, Seth Lugo? Seth Lugo? I was going to say Matt Bowman. I think they're kind of the same. Um, I mean, Lugo is probably better options. Like, I mean, he's like, it's like a fastball curve. Somebody asked me about him the other day, and I'm like, he could be a fastball curve guy in a pen, maybe. But you can say that about a, a hundred double-A starters in baseball. I guess so. I mean, I guess the question is, you know, if you think that they could use him you know, in the pen this year, you know, do you want to hang on to him just in case? No, um, not really. I mean, yeah, probably not. <laughs> I just, I can't get. I'm sorry, excited well, about that. Look, yeah, and then like, also, are you I really mean, going to protect that guy over Cody Satterwhite, who sits, you know, 92 to 95? Eh, I mean, not really. Yeah, I can't. It's we're really on the fringes here. I and, mean, so and, to, the argument against that is like you can probably find a better candidate to serve that role on your team in the actual Rule 5 draft. <laughs> that actually <laughs> might be true, yeah. The, the, yeah, the problem is is that um, I, I feel like they're going to fill out the roster, like they're going to completely fill out the 40-man. Um, I just don't know which guys, if they're going to you know, release anybody, if they're going to open up more spots in the 40-man or what. You know, I don't know how they value guys like Buddy Carlisle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was shocked that I was a little shocked that Buddy Carlisle was still on the. I mean, yeah. the hip thing cost him like the entire season, 
I can't imagine he's really going to pitch again. Yeah, I mean, and he was he was fairly expensive last year, right? I mean, wasn't he a, an ARB guy last year? Was he? I thought he was a... Yeah, he must have been, actually, because he's I been around he, forever. He, I mean, they might have had him on, like, the vet minimum, which is, like, I think around a million. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think he's his days on the 40-man are you know, short. Sure, so. I mean, there's no hurry for them to make spaces. Right, and so, guys, we, I mean, we've already gotten past, like, the, the guaranteed guys, and we've... The fringe guy is Becerra, but I think they're going to add him. And then beyond that, it's just like, yeah. who are they high on in the organization? Who do you think they could lose? Give me a random name you think they could lose. Well, I already gave you, I already gave you Tyrone. Yeah, okay, fair um, enough. But you know, looking at the list here, well, you got you got Mickey Janice, who's the uh, the knuckleballer. He's, he's got the he's got like the Arizona Fall League Rule Five pop up guy thing going for him too. Oh, he's pitching well there? He's pitching in the AFL, yeah. That just means yeah. everybody sees him. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a guy. I mean, you know, who knows? And then, uh, I don't know, like a guy like Jace Boyd or... Um, Jace Boyd. Give me a break. I know. Hey, I'm just saying, who could they lose? He's got a, a bat. A, a first like, base only right-handed hitting. There you go. Bench bat, yeah. I don't know. Zach Thornton, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I could see Zach Thornton, I guess. I kind of like, uh, if I'm going to go off the... Off the board a little bit, Alberto Baldonado. Alberto Baldonado. The lefty touches ninety-five. Okay. Jeez. Uh, Nabil Krismat, if you want to get really obscure, not as much fastball, but he's got two present day. Good, yeah, good. The changeup's good. He has some feel you, for a curve. You're talking about a guy who just pitched in Kingsport. Yes, it's the rule five, man. You're just showing off now. Weird stuff happens. <laughs> um, and he, hey, my point in this is he has experience, as I was told by a member of his family on Twitter, he has experience in the Pan Am games against a higher level of competition and pitched very well oh, there. All right. So there you go. And I'm sure plenty of scouts saw him there too. So he's the kind of guy that is on radars. What about uh, George or Jorge or however you spell it? Carrillo? It's Jorge. Carrillo. Jorge. Uh, catchers, uh, I don't know. Catchers are... Could he stick as a backup? For he's not so good defensively. I think he could stick for a whole year as a backup. Yeah. I guess I would say. Hey, Francisco Pena kicking around. He gets a World Series ring. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he was actually a minor league free agent, though, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Because he was one of Omar's guys that they rushed to the system. And he spent like four years in St. Lucie from like age 19 to 22. <laughs> And now that we're yeah. talking about Francisco Pena, this is probably a good time to wrap up our Rule 5 discussion. I agree. But we will be back with the uh, Rule 5 fallout they have until November 20th to add all these guys in a couple, week, in a couple weeks. And Greg, we'll see you next week for the uh, AAAAAOP. I hope you are uh, oh boy, working hard on that. Yeah. Yep. I got it all planned out. We'll be back with more Amazing Avenue audio in a minute. We will do our formal Amazing Avenue audio, Amazing Avenue off-season plans next week on the show, but we will kick off some off-season Avenue audio with Lucas Vlahos and take a look at where the Mets might need to make some moves. Uh, We're going to assume, as we did with 
Brian, that Murphy and Suspedis are not coming back, Lucas. So is Juan Lagares and Dilson Herrera enough at center field and second base? Uh, in order, no and yes, I think. So no Lagares, but yes to Herrera. So let's say... And a lot of it comes down to the, the actual state of Juan Lagares' elbow. We know he's not going to have Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean his arm strength is going to come back in any meaningful sense in 2016. But even if you believe he bounces back with the glove and you know, sheds the extra barwis weight and can go back to playing shallower while not having even more balls hit over his head, um, he's still not, you know... I mean, if you want to punt for the glove, that's one thing, but can you really play him against right-handed pitchers? No, at this point. And even against left, like his his numbers against lefties are solid, but that's the short side of a platoon. So going into the season with Juan Lagares as your primary center field option when his defense is questionable at this point, not questionable, but the eliteness of his defense is questionable, that doesn't seem like the greatest plan. And the free agent options are mostly expensive guys that are probably corner outfielders. Good corner outfielders, but corner outfielders. Right. Um, And I don't think spending $60 million on Dexter Fowler is the best idea. I mean, I like Dexter Fowler. Uh, Right. I mean, the two sort of like center field options are Fowler and Span. Mm -hmm. Fowler is a little bit younger. He's been a pretty consistent hitter with the bat. You know, it lets you move granderson's power into the two hole so maybe he gets a you know pops a couple home more home runs with guys on base it's a switch hitting leadoff guy that can steal bases um that's like a nice thing that mets fans maybe remember (laughs) you know he's not i don't think he's a great defensive center fielder which might expose your corner defense a little bit Mm -hmm. but it's like you're going to hear talk about, oh, they need to upgrade their defense because of the Royals. But, you know, to get to where the Royals are, they have to upgrade like seven spots defensively. <laughs> That's not happening. Especially if you're playing Conforto is not Alex Gordon in left field. That's not going to happen. Right isn't the right of old. Shortstop isn't going to change. We're not going to be the Royals. Uh, you know, I like Denard Span a lot, but I liked peak Denard Span. Right. Uh, honestly, I think if the Mets had the money, right, we're working under the assumption that this is the current Mets and they still don't have money commensurate with the New York market. We'll get to that, but yes. <laughs> if they did, I would say overpaying for Fowler would make some sense. Like, okay, we're going to take a little bit of a hit here to push. But given the constraints, I think Span is the best option, even with the injuries and the declining defense. He's the long half of the platoon to go with Ligaris. You can sub Ligaris in like game for defense. Um, and the project, the estimates I've seen are like 330 or 339, and that seems way too high for me given that he just had three surgeries. So I think he should be significantly cheaper than that. It is. He is the one guy here without a qualifying offer attached, and he did specifically change his agent to Scott Boris. I had forgotten the Scott Boris point. Um I would say, you know, maybe this is the year if you were going to go, and, and obviously they went for Kadir last year, but if this was the year you're going to go for a qualifying offer guy, it wouldn't be the worst because you assume you're recouping a pick probably 10 to 15 spots lower for Murph. Mm-hmm. So the the gap there isn't as significant as it was when you're giving up the 15th overall pick for Kadir and your next pick was 53. Let's not recall that. 
Hillside uh, boots. So I like I like Fowler maybe a little bit more than Spawn just because of I mean if you can get Spawn on like a shorter deal I just don't know that I see that working. He is like the more obvious platoon partner and you don't mm-hmm. want to like end up with a Brandon Nemo on Lagaris platoon by like June 15th. That would be ugly especially with Lagaris's elbow injuries and Nemo's Knee? Your knee was the thing bothering was the him thing this, this year. year yeah. yeah. I'm going to quibble a little bit at second base. I love Dilson Herrera, and I think mm-hmm. there's a reasonable shot. Let's say 20%. He gives you like a 322 on base and a 450 slugging like Murph did this year, and he probably mm-hmm. gives you better defense there. But he's only 22. That's a fairly big performance risk. I know they're probably going to resign Kelly Johnson, and you get a you get a fallback position. But all you're really doing there is, uh, you know, giving yourself a fallback position. You want to maintain the offense you had in the second half of the season. Right. Uh, and that offense did not have Kelly Johnson starting every day. Indeed. Um, my, my point with Herrera was, I, I agree that he's awesome. His minor league st- the stats are what they are, but his minor league numbers are excellent. He still put up a 92 weighted runs created plus in the majors with a 250 BABIP and given his profile, I'm assuming his BABIP is going to be higher than average, not 50 points below average. And the free agent options are really just garbage outside of overpaying for Zobris, which again is something the Mets really can't afford to do. They have been linked to Zobris and I wouldn't be morally opposed to it. Certainly he is kind of a perfect fit for them in so much as he's a perfect fit for Many, many, many teams. Right. Um, even given his age, and, and you know, he's had a fairly gentle decline so far, and I so see no reason that that wouldn't continue given the skill set. Um, but again, it comes down to whether the the budget will allow for it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if you want to look at other internal second base options, there's uh, Wilmer Flores, who's probably less likely to give you that 320 on base percentage, and isn't a huge upgrade over Daniel Murphy, but he's another guy that probably needs to be platooned at this point or used that sort of super utility, you know, for, he could really play all four infield positions for you. Right. And I think, I think Flores going into next season with the Flores Tejada situation at short top is fine. Given that Flores will be able to flex around and cover right at third base. If he needs uh, a day off and also help at second base, assuming they bring, Johnson back, they could both help at second base. So I like Flores' potential for next year and compared to the free agent options outside of paying $15 million a year for a 35-year-old Ben Zobrist. With the Mets' salary being what it is, I think that's the way they have to go. So that brings us to the sort of the main problem here. Everywhere else, the Mets are kind of locked in. And there's a lot of risk right now, both performance and injury at third base and catcher. But they're going to mm-hmm. roll with David Wright and Travis Darnot, obviously. The corner outfield and first base spots are locks. And I wouldn't say that Conforto, Granderson, and Duda are likely to be better next year than they were this year once you account for Conforto seeing more lefties. And I think he'll hit lefties enough mm-hmm. to play against them, but not as well as he hits righties. So it will affect his overall numbers, even getting the extra half season of him. He will also be out there instead of Kadir and Mayberry. Yeah. So that's some that is probably some a slight edge. Over you know, is Granderson going to be a five-win player again? 
Mm. You know, is Duda? I mean, Duda's performance seemed pretty stable, but you never know. I mean, they're unlikely to be better, certainly. So again, you're just sort of holding serve with what you had in April, May, June, and July, mm-hmm. which I suppose leaves us with shortstop. And I know I said recently we were done here, but looking over the free agent landscape and where the Mets could actually upgrade. Uh, Lucas, I see no way around a third offseason of this. Oh, Lord. Dania Echeverria is probably not available. Yes, it's season three of Shortstop Avenue Audio. America's favorite shortstop should really be playing third. So, Sandy, can we have a word about Shortstop Avenue Audio? The end of last season was tragic, and we need our own Esky magic. But I'll settle for something quite drastic if it ends Shortstop Avenue Audio. So going for an offensive upgrade here I think is difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, Flores and Tejada were pretty close to league average with the bat, which is good for shortstop. So you got to look at, I think, you know, a defensive upgrade. Sure. So the guy, and, the guys I like are Adani Echeverria and Jose Iglesias. Okay. So Echeverria is an elite defender that can hit a little bit. Sure. The issue is, can you carry him and Juan Lagares in the same lineup? Did the numbers finally snap back to agreeing that he's an elite defender? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had put up huge uh, metric numbers for those finally. of you that care about that. Uh, I mean, he's obviously been a very good defender for a while. Same with Jose Iglesias, where the numbers mm-hmm. haven't quite... I mean, they've been okay, but not spectacular. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the Marlins going to move... Echeverria inside the division. I don't fucking know what the Marlins are going to do, dude. <laughs> no, but nobody does. I, he's probably available. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna fire two more managers like, and I don't wind know. up Ozzy Guillen again before the start of the season, and that's a perfectly reasonable prediction because it's Loria and the Marlins. Um, Iglesias, I think the Tigers might be more willing to move just because of where they are on the wind curve, and you know, I think he, didn't he get in a fight in the dugout with their backup catcher last year or something? Yeah, yeah, that yeah he's a little bit of a. Yeah. I just keep going back to the play I saw made in Pawtucket against Zach Lutz, who granted is not a great runner, but at that point in time could still, you know, it was probably a, a 40 runner from the right side. Lutz hit the laser basically into short left field. Uh, Iglesias plays the in-between hop at full extension and then pops up and throws a shoulder high strike from the outfield grass and gets Lutz by like three steps. He's one of the best defenders I've ever personally seen. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, I don't want to. It's tough to compare anyone to Andrelton Simmons, but he's close. Yeah, and he's you know he hits and you know it's an empty three hundred the last couple of years, but he's not a complete offensive zero for you. Right, it's super Babbitt, but yeah, he's done it a couple of years in a row, so maybe it's sustainable to some level. And again, we just get back to the idea that there's no. You know, where are the internal upgrades coming from? They've pretty much spent their entire farm system. Right. Well, that begs the question then, what are they trading for Iglesias? Because if the Tigers are trading him, they're probably looking to rebuild a little bit. And what well, do the Mets have left to offer? They have options. You, you can sell the uh, you can sell the first round prep picks. Um, if the you know the Tigers or any team per se wants to buy them. You, know, you just got to find the right 
the right matchup there, I think. But I wouldn't be opposed to trading one of Chikini, Nimmo, or Smith. I think I'd be I'd be pretty willing to trade any of them for Iglesias. I, th- I, mean, I mean, for like a current major, even if not a superstar or even a star of a, a current major league regular. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. I think you have and, to do that. Mm-hmm. My, I wonder if the shin issues would ever come back with him. I don't know how recurrent those kind of things are. But again, if if it's if you get if you can get him for Nemo Shakini or Smith plus a couple prep arm flyers, which are basically a random number generator, then yeah, you do it because that's an up, probably an upgrade over Flores and Tejada. I suppose if we're gonna go onto the trade market, that means Matt Harvey trade talk. Oh Lord, again. <laughs> Uh, it's we're gonna be doing this all off season. It's, mm-hmm. it's gonna be a thing that happens. So my sort of like stump speech on this, my opening salvo, whatever you want to call it. They are entering 2015, April 1st or whatever their actual opening day is against the Royals, with five major league quality starting pitchers. I mean, Nice is a major league quality starting pitching for somebody, maybe not a mm-hmm. first division team, but and the four young arms. You know, God willing, Bartolo will be back. You know, Logan Verrett is yeah a reasonable six starter fallback guy that can take a couple starts if somebody gets hurt and you need to give an extra day or there's a doubleheader or whatever. You know, Wheeler will be coming back too. Yeah, July. Yeah. You got to get there, and you know the rules for young starters are very simple. You're probably losing a dude for a year. Yeah. You know, Steven Matz hasn't proven he can handle a full starter's workload yet, and both he and Syndergaard are going to be on some sort of innings cap, probably. I just think trading Harvey might open more problems than it solves. But it's no secret this is probably going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, I, I'm i in the same boat where I don't see the benefit in trading Harvey to fill one hole when you then create another hole unless there's i mean i'm super high on like rich hill on the free agent market so if you really think you can hit on a free a cheap free agent pitcher then there's the justification but more than that where's the trade partner because with the place the mets are on the wind curve right now you're trading him for current major league talent and who out there is in a position to trade for harvey and give up a young center fielder or shortstop right now to do it cubs red sox Rangers. It's probably the list. Right. And the Red Sox, they don't really Dodger, have another shortstop. Dodgers, too, I would say. Sure, yeah. The the Red Sox don't have another shortstop, so they won't probably won't move Bogarts. Bets I could see, um, and that's really the only one I came up with. Uh, for the Cubs, the only shortstop that interests me, at least, is Russell, because Castro is Castro, and Baez is going to strike out. 50% of the time. Um, and pro, if the Rangers are probably trading Profar, and who knows what his shoulder is going to give you at this yeah, point. I don't think they can really trade Profar until he plays a couple months in Round Rock, wherever their AAA affiliate is. I think it's still Round Rock. I uh, think it is. And they he proves that, yeah, he can play shortstop and the shoulder's still healthy. I mean, he's hit in the Arizona Fall League, which is, is still something. You really, really should not pay attention to Arizona fall league box scores but he's in them which is an improvement right certainly and And, and the scouting reports from the people that have seen him down Mm -hmm. there easy looks pretty good so that's good actually the guy i would target on the rangers is uh 
and this isn't strictly a shortstop, but I think he makes the team a lot better in in 2016 is uh, Ruhi Odor. I would agree with you there. Um, I no. just don't think they'd move him. They love Ruhi, so I don't see that. But, you know, all of a sudden you're running out you Darvish, Cole Hamels, and Matt Harvey at the front end of that rotation. That has to be a little tempting for them. And they can plug Profar in a second, even if the shoulder's not all the way back for throwing. If he's healthy. You could trade for... You could trade for Odor's brother that has the same name, <laughs> yeah. and it's also yeah, can, on the Rangers. Yeah, you got to be careful about that. Psych. Yeah. Didn't Odor come up as a shortstop? And I think I, mean, he, he I was, think he, he was always sort of seen as a second baseman long term. I don't know exactly when he when he made the transition. Then again, we just went through a whole season with Flores at shortstop, so that didn't really stop us. So we danced around it a bit, Lucas. Let's talk money. We have none. Yeah. With contractually obligated raises and likely ARB awards, Mets are going to be at $94 million before they sign anyone. Yep. If they could find $40 million, you know, $130, $135, this all goes away, which is a pittance for a New York City team coming off a playoff run, you would think. Especially now that their salary is st- it's still bottom third, at yes. least. Yes. <sighs> the road goes on forever and the party never ends. Um, it's, all, it's all going to the trustees, probably. At least according to Howard Magdal, who researches this better than uh, just about everybody. Yep. If it is going somewhere, it's likely going to the trustees in the form of a 30-ish million dollar payment in 2016 never ends and we're out of pitching prospects to trade for top hitters at midseason because yes. we could buy one in the offseason yes that was the thing i think i think i actually saw a quote or a, a rumored tactic where they're gonna spend a little bit and then see where they are at the trade deadline what are you going to be trading at the trade deadline exactly you try to sell on dom smith when he Everyone realizes he can't hit 95 in the inner half in double A. Possibly. That might be a thing that happens. Plus, that's not a good way to build long-term success. That's, yes. Let's sit in the middle and then I mean, yes, throw if, if away they're, our top If prospects. they're in it at, at, the, at the deadline, you look to make upgrades where you can. Right. That's something that a competitive team should do. But mm-hmm. you also want to put yourself in the best position to be in it at the deadline. Right, right. Going into the season with that strategy is not a good idea. We'll just find, year after, we'll just find another guy that's going to hit 20 home runs for us in two months down the stretch. Because that's happened how many times in Major League history? Not many, I'm guessing. Suspedis was a Suspedis and Manny, basically. Right. Would be the two that, that jumped to mind. Just sign Manny. Right away. So there it is, your opening off-season salvo. Obviously, we're talking about these sort of things and much more, and God knows the Mets might sign someone before next week's show. That's what they did last year. Ruining our AAOPs in so much as you can ruin a purely intellectual exercise. But for now, we'll take a short break. Come back. We'll answer your emails. Now it's time for your emails, and before we do emails, we do housekeeping. 
This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 157. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. Find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Or join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue. Find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. You can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Also, we will soon be on Google Play Music, if that's a thing you do. You can also download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. All right, I can do this. Our co-host this week... Our Kate Feldman, you can find her on Twitter at Kate E. Feldman. That's not Katie Feldman, that's Kate E. Feldman. Brian Salvatore is at Brian Needs a Nap. Greg Karam is at Greg Karam. Lucas Vlahos, for some reason, does not have his name as the Twitter handle, which makes it really annoying for me. But it's at E-R-U-I-L-U-V-A-T-A-R-7. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. And my co-host for the email segment is Milo Tybee, who you can follow on Twitter at Milo Tybee. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. Milo, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com if you did not know that. (laughs) I plan on it. Our first email is from Rob. Dear Friendly Voices. He sent this in November 1st. That would be during Game 5. Sitting here after the Royals have batted in the first inning of Game 5. Well, there you go. I have realized what it is that annoys me so much about this team. Basically, they're the counterexample to sabermetrics i.e. the team that troglodytes point to and say, see? Part of the problem is that we have the baseball equivalent of the Whig Party on commentary. I muted. I will say I did mute Buck Reynolds and Verducci for large swaths of the World Series. They treat every positive outcome for the Royals as completely earned and point to the way the Royals play as the reason they get 15 bloop singles in a game to fall. I don't know if Harold Reynolds can pronounce BABIP. Is too much to ask for the baseball intelligentsia the note that whether a bloop is a hit is dependent largely on luck. Eric Hosmer has a ton of RBI in the postseason. I thought we'd all agree the only time we should mention RBIs again is when we're reminiscing about RBI baseball for the NES. Anyway, I get the Royals play good defense, make good contact, and have good speed. But can you please get the world of sport to not treat the lucky breaks these guys get as irrefutable proof that everyone should play like we Willie Keeler? Also, notwithstanding back-to-back World Series appearances, Dayton Moore is a mediocre GM, from 2005 to 2011, the Royals' first round pick was, by year, 2-1-2-3-12-4-5. Picking that high means the Royals sucked for years. They also should have gotten at least a few studs. I'll grant you Alex Gordon, though they ran him off third base. Hosmer is a solid three-win player, roughly equivalent to Duda. And Moustakas finally had a serviceable year this year after getting by on his looks for years. The rest of those picks, woof. Remember when the Royals had the greatest farm system in history circa 2010? The washout rate from that farm system class is astounding. As they say, even a broken clock is right twice a day, and if you give them long enough, even Steve Phillips can construct a team that makes the World Series. Hashtag am I right. Thanks for everything this year, you guys. I really do love the pod. So, are the Royals anti-sabermetric? The answer to that question is no, Milo. They are not. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it that way either. I mean, just looking over their team numbers this season, they've got a good handful of guys in the starting lineup who's, uh, who get on base regularly. 
Moustakis, Hosmer, uh, Kendris Morales, Lorenzo Cain. Uh, the only real anti-sabermetric part of their team seems to be the manager. Ned Yost doesn't uh, necessarily seem to be on board with that philosophy. Well, even Yost, I think, seems to understand reliever leverage, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I mean, look, certain writers are going to proffer this idea that the Royals are anti-moneyball or anti-sabermetrics, just as they did for the Giants, you know, when the Giants were winning. And, you know, the, the fan graft commenters are going to push back on Twitter, and both groups are going to continue to yell past each other. This isn't really about the way baseball teams operate because every single baseball team, even the Phillies now, um, use analytics in, in some respect. This is a uh, Colin Wires who used to write for BP and is now in the, in the Astros front office made a, a, a good comment that all these arguments are really death of the newspaper industry and drag arguments because the teams have moved on. Mm-hmm. And if you're not acknowledging that all these teams use analytics, you're not, you know, covering accurately covering or accurately rep- representing the industry that you cover. You know, look at the Royals' defensive positioning. Is that is that spray chart data? Is that advanced scouting? It's probably both. They're not going to talk about it. Teams rarely talk about it because these are, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations that are not going to give you an insight into how they operate. There's no incentive to do so. It's a competitive advantage if you have some thing, whether analytical or scouting-based, that you don't think anybody else has. I mean, the yeah, you know, there was a book about how the pirates did it, so we associate, you know, sort of that newfangled spray chart and shifting with the pirates. But you know, the Royals' defensive positioning, at least from what I saw in the playoffs, was as good as any team that regularly sort of does traditional shifting. And the Cardinals' way, you know, it sounds like old school magic, but they're incredibly analytical. You know, Lunau. And uh, Sig Medjidal both started there before they went to the Houston front office. Um, and look, and, you know, Jeff Lunau put the Houston into a competitive state faster than Dayton Moore does. Did you know? Nobody gets a decade nowadays. It's just I don't know how much you want to read into that because it's such a weird, sort of unique thing. Yeah, as far as Dayton Moore goes, I mean, for every Jose Guillen signing, he also locked up Sal Perez for $7 million over five years, which looks pretty good right now. So I'm not sure he's uh, too much of a target here. No, and it's like, you know, the to the victor goes the spoils, winners write the history books, whatever. You know, it's, it's like Brian Sabian, too. It's like his stuff didn't work until it did, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he got to rebuild twice. You know, no, not many GMs get to do that. But, I mean, if I'm honest, uh, even the Mets front office looks conservative nowadays based on who's getting hired in, in for GM positions. It's all like, you know, 30-year-old Wharton econ masters. Yeah, Those there are... The dudes uh, that are getting it. There are more Ben Sherrington's baseball than Ruben Amaro's. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, five-game series don't actually prove anything. <laughs> <laughs> the elephant in the room. Yeah, and you can't really... I mean, you, you can't always fill a weekly column with well-researched stuff every week either. Agreed. Our next email is from Thomas. Hey guys, long time listener, first time emailer. Which big free agent signing is going to blow up in Metsian fashion? Also, I think nobody on the 40 man roster is safe, including any of the big four, Wright, Granderson, etc. I would love to see Sandy pull the trigger on a blockbuster deal. I will hang up and listen. Thanks. Tom from Staten Island. 
Um, well, if, if Chris Davis does get eight years, $172 million or whatever that John Heyman was saying, I think it's probably going to be that one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's actually going to happen, though. I mean, he still might be. If he gets you know five years, $100 million, that's still not a great profile to give that money to. Um, I would be pretty wary of giving Ian Desmond a, a big contract. It's a good one. I mean, uh, coming off a down year, MLB Trade Rumors has him projected at uh, five years, $80 million. I would be very hesitant to give him that sort of uh, that sort of money after a sub-700 uh, OPS season. I, I might be a little weary, wary about uh, giving a big deal to Justin Upton. Right. Like, I know, I know when he's young enough that you think he's going to at least maintain his production, but he hasn't really been like a star since mm-hmm. 2011, and he's going to get paid like one. And I don't want to sort of, you know, like sins of the brother or read too much into into genetics as destiny, but, you know, Melvin fell off a cliff at 28, and both have looked like kind of early peak guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, if he's going to get, you know, as a 28-year-old free agent outfielder in this market, he might get close to $200 million. That seems like an awful lot. Wouldn't surprise me. And uh, and he played banged up quite a bit this past season. Right. Yeah, I, I've only I've only heard passing rumors about uh, him landing with the Mets, but man, I, I really hope that doesn't. They were definitely it. like interested in him at the trade deadline, but all of like AJ Preller's ass in San Diego were just so ridiculous that it's tough to. Uh, yeah, know, he uh, know what the actual level of interest was. That was the blueprint for when uh, going for it goes wrong. Yeah, Preller's uh, last offseason. As far as blockbusters go, I'll, I'll say this. I think the Mets would probably like to get out from under the right contract. Right. But I don't think it's fair to say they want to trade David Wright specifically. Yeah. Um, the email says nobody on the 40-man roster is safe. I, I don't know about that. I don't see Alderson shaking things up too much this offseason, if I had to guess. Well, if, Cer- if, if, Certainly not Wright or Granderson. If they look to get a, a big bat, they might have to trade one of their big arms. They don't want to spend the money, which they might not be able to spend the money. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not opposed. I mean, these aren't specifically 40-man guys at the moment, but I'm not strenuously opposed to selling, I don't know if I even want to say selling high, but selling the prep picks now, uh, specifically Brandon Nimmo, Gavin Cicchini and Dominic Smith. And you might find a team that still buys into it, to a big upside projection with one or more of the three. And since no one trades prospects anymore, um, you might be able to get a little extra value out of them. Right. Uh, Nemo, who I, I think is still up for grabs in the Rule 5, unless they just add him to... Uh, yeah, they'll have, to, they'll have to add him by the 20th. Yeah. But that, that seems pretty likely to happen. Yes. Um, with... With Rosario on the horizon, Ahmed Rosario, it wouldn't surprise me to see Gavin uh, Sacchini use his trade bait. He does have a shoulder issue right now, I guess. It's keeping him out of the uh, some Team USA competition. But mm-hmm. I don't imagine it's... At least I have not heard that it is particularly serious. So He's not going to pull a Reese Havens on us? No, one would hope not. Our next email is from... Max... Watching the Mets this postseason, I learned something. Postseason baseball is really exciting. The highs are high. 
The lows have me throwing my shoes at the wall at high velocities. Still, the postseason format bothers me. We throw out the entire season record and engage in a game of barely awaited coin flips and small sample sizes. It is subject to the randomness of, I don't know, a team batting 347 with runners in scoring position at the exact right times, causing everyone to rethink baseball advanced metrics, that is, once they finish signing all of their mid-tier free agents. It's been a rough World Series. Anyway, I know MLB will never change it, but I was wondering what you thought of the following changes. For the divisional round, make it a best of seven with one game and home field advantage spotted to the team with a better record, and one game spotted to the team with a better head-to-head record. For the league championship round, the same idea. Best of nine with the game spotted to the team with a better record. Another game spotted the team with a better head-to-head record. For the World Series, the best of nine with the game spotted to the same thing, essentially. Yes. Also, as baseball becomes more international, I'm reminded of the famous John Cleese quip that when Britain holds a world championship for something, they actually invite other countries to play. Have you forgotten Canada, Max? Does Canada not count? <laughs> I, for one, like to see them proceed by having them face the Mets' former farm system, a.k.a. the Rakuten Golden Eagles. Is there any chance that a Champions League-style format for baseball wouldn't be a total embarrassment for teams from other countries? Could the apparent American advantage be wiped out in small sample sizes? Is this something people would even watch? Lastly, as for stupid gossipy nonsense you probably don't care about, do you think the Royals will slash should raise the championship flag against the Mets in their opener? I, for one, am okay with it, as long as the Royals sign Chase Utley and putting him in the opening day lineup as a target. Anyway, thanks for the nightly playoff podcast. Fan, as always, Max. So there's I, there's one problem, Milo, that jumps out to me immediately with Max's playoff format mm-hmm. is I'm not really looking forward. We have a Mr. October Reggie Jackson. I guess Derek Jeter is Mr. November or whatever. We're going to be crowning a Mr. December at this rate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about the best of nine format. I mean, it's, it, and it still doesn't really get you that much closer to a, a, a fair sample because you're comparing it to 162 games. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have to remind anyone of the 2006 National League Championship Series where the Mets were, you know, 12 or 13 games better than the Cardinals over 162. But even if you break that down, you know, they're not even really one game better than them over seven games. And all it takes is a bit of randomness to flip that, even if you have a full game advantage over... uh seven you know one great pitching performance one random bullpen meltdown that kind of stuff yeah the spontaneity is what makes postseason baseball exciting um just looking over this email the only thing i'm on board with is uh i'd I'd like to reconfigure how home field advantage works you know instead of take it away from the all-star game which is taking a game that's supposed to be about fun and uh, and forcing guys to take it seriously who are playing on non-contending teams. And nobody really actually takes it seriously. Right, right, right. I think um, there's not so much of a, of a hangover anymore from that one All-Star game where uh, I forget which, which year it was. Mike Mucina wasn't available to pitch, so it had to end in a tie. Yeah, I don't remember what year it was either. Yeah, the Bud Selig. The Bud, yeah, the Bud Selig. We don't. Um... The divisional round? Uh, what do you think? I think it's fine, best of uh I think it is, too. I mean, you run into things where, like, you know, some team can throw Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke for four out of five games, but, you mm-hmm. know, good for them for having Clayton Kershaw and Zach Greinke. Yeah. 
Yeah, that randomness I I embrace about postseason baseball. Uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, Moneyball, but I remember a part of that book was Billy Bean talking about how his only job was strictly to get the team to the postseason because it's a total crapshoot from there. Sure, and uh, you know the John Cleese quote is nice and everything, but even Britain sort of more rigorously delineates between sort of a playoff structure, which would be like the the League Cup or the FA Cup, and the actual league which where everyone it's it's a completely balanced schedule everyone plays each other home and home and the winner is the team with the most points at the end of the year and that's how they mm-hmm. sort of really choose to crown their champion right now baseball can't do that exactly but i know i think joe sheehan in his newsletter at some point proposed some sort of like cup type competition around the all-star game mm-hmm. where teams could do you know a lot of times in, in britain you'll see teams rest there stars and play the kids so teams could decide how hard they want to go after the uh whatever you want to call it the bart giamatti cup or whatever <laughs> at the all-star break and bud Selig, they probably just name it after bud Selig. let's be honest right the bud Selig cup and just make the all-star break a little bit longer a week long you know they play a knockout tournament it'd be cool to sort of see like a one like a bunch of like winner take all formats too right maybe more entertaining than like you know a dingers competition in a celebrity softball game right right right. um as far as the golden eagles comment here isn't that uh the world baseball classic is for yeah i think essentially i mean that's a little bit different whether they succeed or fail at that format right um i think that is more sort of what you'd be looking for i'm wondering do they have that many i usually pay attention i haven't actually seen who's on uh rakuten's roster this year Like Kaz Matsui, maybe. I'm guessing Lasting's Millage. No, Lasting's Millage is on the Tokyo Yakult Swallows. Let's take a quick look here. Uh, oh, Reiner Cruz is there, so there's one. We mentioned him already in the Rule Will 5. He, uh, the Rule 5 preview. Uh, Kaz Matsui is there, yeah. Only one Gabby Sanchez? Coming. Is that that? No, that's the Pirates' Gabby Sanchez, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Pirates and Marlins, right? Yeah. Zealous Wheeler. And he was in the Reds organization? I think so. I'm probably missing somebody. Uh, Ken Ray was the Braves uh, set of man and closer for a little while. But there are there is more than one former Met on the uh, 2015 Tohoku yeah. Rakuten uh, Golden Eagles. So good for good for Ryder Cruz getting that ring. All right. <laughs> Um, as for the Royals, look, they won the World Series. They get to raise the flag at their first home game, which happens to be against the Mets. That's how it's going to go. They're going to get their rings, and you just hope that, you know, for as much as this kind of stuff matters as motivation, the Mets just sort of put that in their memory banks for the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I don't know how much I buy into that at this level of competition. Sure. This idea that the Mets are just sitting at home stewing over the off season. Uh you know, when you get beaten as soundly as they did in that series, I don't think it wouldn't really matter to me if the Royals raised the flag in their home opener. Frankly, it just seems like they should. That's, sense. What, that's what teams do. And I, yeah. I think they should spare the Mets' feelings. I mean, come on. Specifically wait for the Mets to leave town. Our next email is from the non-pseudonymous JJ Mack, Ahoy Jeffrey and co-host, reflecting upon the 2015 World Series. I can't help but feel the Mets very well could have won four out of the five games played. You would, you would not be wrong about that, JJ. With only Game 2 being a legitimate shellacking. 
The dispassionate part of my intellect wants to understand this as cause to feel good about the team, but my Mets fan's souls only plunge deeper into despondency. Because you so studiously avoided masochistic reflection in episode 156, I'm going to request that you indulge in some now and rank the reasons the Mets lost the World Series that they might easily have won. The potential culprits are listed alphabetically so as not to prejudice your evaluation. A, Mets bullpen shortcomings. B, Mets defensive mishaps. C, Mets offensive somnolence. D, Royals dinkity dunkity bleepity bloopity. No strikeout offense. E, Royals generally strong defense. F, Terry Collins. Jeffrey, you and the Amazing Avenue audio crew demonstrated superlative hashtag want with your postseason podcast production. And I commend you all for the fine work. Look, we're never doing that again. Unless the Mets make the playoffs again. <laughs> In which case, we probably will do it again. But I'm just starting to catch back up on enough sleep that I lost in the month of October. Looking forward to debating Dom Smith's power projection. Legitimately crazy email questions. I promise no DH-related emails from me. Fixated on fringy minor leaguers. I promise more John Moore-related emails from me. The Shortstop Avenue Audio Jingle Version 3, asking you shall receive. And sharing in sweet, sweet alcohol-soaked cynicism with you this off-season and in 2016. Excelsior. JJ in Texas. I think, look, you'd go a lot of different ways, but Murphy scoops a grounder and Duda makes a throw. They're probably going back to Kansas City up 3 2. Now, how did they get in that situation? If you want to blame the bullpen, if you want to blame Collins' bullpen management specifically, Yes, but they could have made the plays and they didn't make the plays. Uh, as far as a general target, it seems like uh, the hitting or lack thereof is probably close to the top of the list, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I get that, but I think you can look at the however you want to judge the interaction between the Mets' offensive issues and the Royals' defensive positioning slash skill set. But they got games four and five deep into their bullpen with a lead. Mm -hmm. You know, deep into the game, and then they didn't make the defensive plays they needed to make. And you can say that kind of maybe cost them game one, too, if you want to go even further on Wright's bad throw, though who knows how that would have played out. That's a little little dodgier. Right. But, you know, Duda makes a throw and Wright makes... Yeah, Familia has to get another weak ground ball after Murphy makes that play, but he got plenty of weak ground balls in that series. You know, the Duda play is more obviously sort of a... like, clear sort of, like, win probability added bang bang play because he makes that play the game's over right but i think i think i gotta go defense first i uh yeah i i go with uh uh hitting and maybe an over-reliance on uh certain guys like tyler clippard and uh certain guys in the bullpen who you know didn't have their best series which a lot of it i think could just be chalked up to luck yeah so is that on the bullpen or is that on terry collins uh both uh, for for Clipper in particular, I probably put more of the blame on Collins. Yeah, he did kind of stick with like everyone. Like you always sort of wonder, like th- these guys are in there with these players day in and day out. It's like, 
like they have to realize they just don't have it. And I don't Clipper it might have been the back issue. Because he was actually pretty decent in that still kind of terrifying Tyler Clippard way before he had like the back spasms and was out for a week. Yeah, it, it definitely seemed like he had some diminished velocity, but that wouldn't account for, you know, losing Lorenzo Cano in two and no, sure. him in after. And there'll be plenty of uh, columns and whatnot written about what Collins should have done in game five in a right. in a must-win scenario there. But again, you know, it's... Yeah, he probably could have pulled Harvey off the initial walk, after the initial walk, but again, you know, they... Familia put them in a position to potentially win the game if the infield defense executes, and it it didn't, and it really didn't all series. Yep. Our next email is from Ben. What do you think of bringing back Bartolo as a swingman reliever out of the bullpen next year? Would he do it? Should we do it? I love it. I don't know. And yes. (laughs) Um, I really like the idea of them re-signing Bartolo. I would even do it uh, if need be, guaranteeing him the fifth rotation spot. You know, I, I don't know how much upside you're looking at otherwise. You're probably looking at starting the year having Montero and, I don't know, maybe some other fringe minor league signing. I mean, free John, John Nice is still there. That That is also assuming, yeah, he stays I mean, that's, I don't have to be excited about that, but he is still mm-hmm. uh, he is still there. It's like one of those things where it's like it's just going to depend on what the market bears for him. Mm-hmm. He might still be able to get a two-year deal somewhere. He'll probably be able to get a one-year deal for more money than you would want to pay strictly a swingman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does he want to take? You know, if you promise him the fifth starter spot, you know, is he going to slide to the pen after Wheeler comes back? Granted, there might be an, another opening with someone else getting hurt before then. That's the kind of thing that can happen to your young pitching rotation, as Mets fans are well aware. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see uh, how many teams are vying for his services because, uh, I mean, he pitched well on, uh, on the big stage in the postseason, but, you know, he, he is still getting on in years and he had stretches of, of ineffectiveness during the regular season. And I'd, I'd be surprised if someone threw a lot of money his way. Our next email is from Michael. Hello, hosts. I don't know how anyone can defend Terry Collins' handling of the World Series. I guess we're going to talk about it some more right now. Mm-hmm. He blew it on so many fronts. One, giving Kadir and Ligara so many at-bats and Uribe just one. Two, pitching a 40-save closer in a six-run game to boost his com- confidence. Three, letting Tyler Clippard walk two hitters. Four, not using fireman Matt Bart nearly enough. Five, using Reed for every single game. Six, not pulling Matt Harvey after over-amped leadoff walk. Seven, forgetting to incorporate no doubles defense in the ninth inning of game five. I'd even forgotten about that one. Eight, not using pitch outs. Nine, letting Suspedis bat with the bases loaded and no outs in crucial spot on one leg. Ten, not using Robles in situations where a strikeout was needed. Do you guys think Terry lasts two years? I don't think he can handle the scrutiny coming his way for five years. He's a leader of the modern-day lovable losers. Now he has serious expectations, and I think he wilts. This team has played horrible fundamental baseball throughout his tenure. That is a direct reflection of the field staff. No. Curious for your thoughts. Fan. Mike, um, he made the World Series this year. He's going to make it to at least the end of 2017. Mm-hmm. That is a thing that now happens. Um, you know, barring like some kind of crazy on-field implosion next year. Um, yeah, uh, the extension is signed. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot to take in with this email here. Uh, for one, I don't think anyone really knows what Uribe's health status was for the World Series. I mean, he logged sure. in at bat. 
and received a hit, but I think it's it's kind of hearsay to imply that him, Kadir, and Ligares were all on equal ground, and Collins just chose Kadir and Ligares over him. I mean, I didn't really have a problem with Familia pitching in Game 3, assuming that it would not affect his workload for 4 and 5. Um I mean, I think you have to use him for six outs in game four, given the situation, and you have to use him for the ninth for game five. Obviously, one inning there would not have been uh, a big deal. And they had already made that decision before Harvey pulled his Harvey thing. And look, yeah, you know, I I would not have done it. I didn't really want Harvey to come out pitch the eighth, and he looked like a guy that was gassed in the eighth, and they got some luck on batted ball stuff. So again, it's sort of like, you always wonder, are these guys watching? They're there every day. Are they not watching these guys? Right. If they can't tell that he just doesn't have it anymore? Like, but I could have, like, okay, give Matt Harvey a base runner, but then he has to go after he lost Lorenzo Cain, I think. Yeah. But this is, again, this comes back to what we talked about in the first segment. This is the package you get. Uh, if the front office had an issue with it, they've had plenty of times to change course. They have repeatedly chosen not to. Nothing he did in the playoffs, for good or for ill, should come as a surprise to anybody that's watched this team over the last five years. It was Terry Collins 101. Yep. Uh, another thing that, that jumped out to me was the uh, the not using pitch outs uh, quibble I the Royals had some of those bases stolen by a mile, and I couldn't have seen Darno having a chance to throw some of the guys like Dyson and, and Kane out on stolen bases. Yeah, they got very good jumps on uh, all of the Mets starting pitching. And we know that DeGrom and Syndergaard have issue, issues holding runners. I was surprised that uh, Kane got that big a jump on Harvey, who's usually better about that. But, right. you know, it, it's a thing that's what the Royals do. Mm-hmm. Uh, not using Robles in situations where a strikeout was needed. I, I was is not very good. Yeah, I I also was surprised that there were such long stretches of the postseason where he wasn't used at all. Yeah, sure. You know? I guess just eyebrow raising. Our next email is from Josh. Hi, this is Josh from New Jersey. I have a couple of questions for you. All right, we'll take them one at a time as we do. One, can you tell me who your favorite Met is? Milo, who is your favorite Met? Currently? Um, yeah, sure. Probably, yeah. Probably go with Neuenheis just because it was his <laughs> third season last year. I mean, how can you not root for the guy? Lost him to the Angels momentarily, and then he rejoins the organization and promptly becomes the first guy to hit three home runs at home. But a lot of Kirk, more Kirk Neuenheis on our first postseason episode than I expected. Yeah. We'll say that a little more than I expected. Um,. I guess for me, you know, it's got to be uh, my main man, Wilmer Flores. Yeah. Two, what was so special about the 2005 season? Um, was this a typo? <laughs> potentially. I mean, the one and the zero are on opposite sides of the keyboard, <laughs> keyboard so I'm going to say no. Um, and I have mentioned the 2005 season a few times. Is this season sort of reminding me of it, only the Mets were better and the division was worse right uh, i mean for me it's just like it's coming out of the, the same kind of like sort of coming out of the wilderness of the art how years or whatever like mm-hmm. oh yeah the mets might be good again that was kind of cool 
Right, yeah, assuming... Um, you know, so sort of like breakout seasons for Wright and Reyes, too. Yeah, that's that's the go-to. I'll, I'll use that answer as well, Wright and Reyes. Three, tell me your favorite moment for this season. I did mine in the first segment, Milo, so you can give us yours now. Yeah, that um that series at the end of the year in Washington, I think was was the most fun I had during uh during the regular season at least watching the Mets play. I mean I think that really drove the nail in the coffin of uh the national season. That was about as much fun as I have had watching baseball, I think, this year. Yeah. That's fair. As far as like one sort of continuous series goes. Four, do you think the Mets will get a true shortstop? I don't know, Josh, but we'll discuss it further on more Shortstop Avenue audio, no doubt. I don't, I don't think that's where they look to upgrade. I'll put it that way. Depends what you mean by true shortstop. Do you mean like a, a real defensive shortstop? or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, I could see them. You know, do you... Can you non-tender Tejada and bring in, like, a real defensive, you know, empty wizard-type backup shortstop? You could. I don't know if they'll do that. Yeah, I mean, if, if this question means, like, do they make a big splash at shortstop over the offseason, I, I, uh, I think it's pretty doubtful. Five, who is by position over the last ten years the best player and pitcher? I don't know if this means Mets or... Non-Mets. And I meant to actually do a play play index search for this, and I didn't, so... You can tap dance a little bit while I, uh... Quickly look this up on play index. Yep. I'm gonna guess it's Miguel Cabrera. It was going to be my guess. Right. Go out on a limb and guess Kershaw. Is he... For pitchers? Yeah, that's probably... Depends how long he's been in the league. Yeah, I wonder if Sabathia has enough on the front end of that to... Uh, even with his recent seasons? I think even with his recent seasons. Um, depending on when Kershaw broke into the league. Alright, we'll start with... Fine, totals for combined seasons and careers. That's all fine, that's all fine, that's all fine. 2006. I'm, I'm curious... My main curiosity here is how high Mike Trout is on this list. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll do a standard wins above replacement search. Uh, is this going to work? I am logged in. You, David Wright is 10th. It'll tell me that. Uh, I thought I was logged in. I hate it when it says I'm logged in. And then I'm not actually logged in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try that again. Player batting. Sabathia's whip has been over 1.4 each of the last two seasons. Yeah, he's not good anymore. (laughs) All right, the best player over the last decade. Actually, it's Albert Pujols. Oh. Guess he got enough at the back end of his peak. Yeah, Pujols. Cabrera's actually third. I would not have guessed who's number two, even though I think he's probably one of the most underrated players in baseball right now. That is Adrian. I would have guessed Cabrera over Pujols. Adrian Beltre is number two. Oh, wow. All right, and for pitchers, let's see. Pitchers are so much more uh, volatile. I meant to look up where Mike Trout is. 
Mike Trout is 21st. He's been in the league since 2011. He didn't play much that season. Mm-hmm. He's been more valuable since 2006 than Carlos Beltran, Hanley Ramirez, Jose Bautista, David Ortiz, Ryan Zimmerman, Russell Martin, Jose Reyes, all of whom played all 10 of those seasons. Yeah, and Hanley Ramirez is going the way of uh, CC Sabathia. That has fallen off. So breaking news on this podcast. Mike Trout is pretty good. <laughs> All right. For pitchers. Think Scherzer's up there? He could be. Oh, I didn't put, I didn't put dates. So I'm like, why am I getting Walter Johnson and Roger Clemens? Let's try that again. It is Clayton Kershaw by a, a probably statistically insignificant one-tenth of a win over Felix Hernandez. Uh, Verlander 2 is up there? Uh, Verlander's 4, Cole Hamill's 3, Zach Greinke 5. Wow. Sabathia is actually 6th. So there you go. We have more emails. We have so many emails. I knew we were going to get loaded with emails like the week after... <laughs> the end of the season but we'll uh oh my god we still have all right so i'm making an executive decision and i'm punting our last four emails to next week's show all right because we've already this podcast is already way too long mm-hmm. so apologies to uh ryan david allen and joe i hope that information or the question the information you are looking for is still relevant. I don't think the Mets are going to do anything at the GM meeting, so probably. For next week's show. That's all I got. We made it to the end of it. Though not really. Oh, okay. Well, no, because because of the order I'm recording these segments, this is the end of the podcast, but it's not really the end of my night, so it feels weird to rewrapping things up. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was the end of uh, that particular, that email or... It is the end of the emails for this week because I can't keep doing these. Yeah. But if you want to email the podcast, maybe wait eight days, you can do so once again at podcast at amazonavenueaudio.com. So here we go. Regular service is resumed here on Amazing Avenue Audio. We'll be back next week with our AAAAAOP spectacular and any other news that might crap up on Amazing Avenue audio.